Welcome to the Supplement Engineer Podcast. My name is Robert Chinesky, returning back in the saddle, brand builder, formulator, consultant, supplement guru extraordinaire, Mr. Ken Engel. <laughs> Ken yeah, said, none of that's true. How are you doing? I'm great. None of that's true, but yeah, I'll, I will try to live up to that. It's good to be back. I really enjoy these discussions. Yeah, man, it's it's fantastic. It's uh for the listeners that have no idea, Kenton and I have been online for about 20, 25 minutes now. We've just been shooting this shit, and uh, I wish we could have <laughs> recorded half of what we just did, but there's no way. Yeah, just to, that's like, totally irrelevant to this discussion, but yeah, yeah, but just knowledge, knowledge bombs, and and kernels of truth, and just awesomeness from Kenton. So, uh, Kenton, it's been a little while since we've uh, chatted formally mm-hmm. on the podcast, but uh, let's catch everybody up to kind of what you're doing now. Uh, the various kind of uh, balls that you're juggling and knives and flamethrowers and all of that in the air that's going on. Yeah. So I've got a few uh, projects. I have two projects specifically that are NDAs, brands that I'm building out. And both of them are, I think, atypical or somewhat people would consider them disconcordant with my work history or, or my history of building brands. But, and we can talk about this later, both of them reflect my evolving views on um evolutionary bioenergetics, uh, exercise physiology, for example, the ways in which I think that we have physiological levers to pull that would somehow circumvent just the massive inertia towards that adaptability of the human body. So those projects reflect my evolving sense of what's, I guess, efficacious if I was speaking English in this space. Both of those are heavily bound by NDAs, so I can't talk about them, but they're interesting. Um, I am currently the vice president of marketing uh, for a company called New Life, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And since we last spoke, I'm no longer associated with uh, Miracle Labs, Merrick Energy, which were brands I co-founded with Doug Miller, or Arms Race Nutrition, which was a, a brand I co-founded there. The split was amicable. I just wanted to do other things, all, also reflecting my evolving sense of what's efficacious, especially in the sports nutrition sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, just doing various consulting and putzing around. I'm doing. I'm also doing a, a, another degree. I'm doing a master's in philosophy. Outstanding. And just to kind of refresh the people. What is your kind of your extensive educational background to this point? You said you're already pursuing a second master. So what do you what, what have you accrued to this point so far? Uh, I should note this is all irrelevant to what we're going to talk about. So if any, I always like to say I have no credentials to be doing what I'm doing. I just like to put that out there now. So that's like none of us it, do. <laughs> it's not yeah. It's not an argument from authority. Um, I like to stipulate that at the beginning of these conversations. But yeah. I did uh, undergraduate degrees in sociology and philosophy. I did a master's degree in um, Critical sociology, I did PhD work in pediatrics, specifically clinical research, and then now I'm doing a master's in philosophy. And then all of my, I don't know if you want to call it training or if you want to call it the sort of epistemic infrastructure of the work that I've traditionally done throughout my 17, 18 career in dietary supplements has been autodidactical, or in other words, self-taught. Yeah. Do you think... We'll ever get to a spot where, like, obviously they have biochemistry. You could do chemical engineering, maybe, or like mm-hmm. organic chemistry. You could major in all these things. Do you ever think we'll get to a point where there's going to be something that is specifically geared towards people that no. want to formulate and understand no. supplements and stuff like that? I don't. I don't think so. I, I don't think so. For two, there. I think there's an an epistemological constraint with respect to constellative knowledge, and I'll explain that. But you and I briefly touched on this before. There's also a socioeconomic constraint, right? Because socioeconomics creates an incentive structure with respect to educational institutions and the sort of curricula programs that they develop, specifically in that universities on an institutional basis have a bifurcated function. One of them is an epistemological function like conferring knowledge, and the other is an economic function 
in that it, it provides a pipeline for labor into the capitalist system. And our space, I think I've talked about this before, but it, it exists in this very strange socioeconomic niche, specifically that we operate within the penumbra of the pharmaceutical industry. And I mean that both on a socioeconomic basis, but also as a compliance and regulatory basis. There is an upper limit to the efficacy of the sorts of products that we create in that mm -hmm. as soon as a product becomes sufficiently effective, it now crosses the liminal space between food and drug into a drug. And then it's a pharmaceutically viable compound, at which point its compliance and regulatory status changes, at which point the economic incentive structure that architects the way that you would create knowledge about that compound also changes. So that's the socioeconomic reason. It's just, we're, there, it's never gonna be sufficiently viable to go into a career in dietary supplements as opposed to pharmaceutical sciences. So. If you are pursuing, and I'll make, I'll dovetail this into the epistemological or constellative point. If you are taking courses or you are pursuing a degree in the sorts of life sciences that substructure or infrastructure career in dietary supplements, that could be something like organic chemistry or biochemistry, uh, molecular genetics, exercise science, right? Mm -hmm. And you pursue that degree for the purpose of a specific vocational opportunity. And you have the option to go into pharmaceuticals, right? You might go into pharmaceutical sales. You could become an analyst at something like Goldman Sachs for pharmaceutical investments. Um, if you're sufficiently trained, you do graduate work, you could be doing research itself. Are you going to pursue that career path with all of its economic opportunities? Or are you going to pursue dietary supplements? You're going to take yeah. right? Unless you're, right. Like, unless you're like, yeah, unless you have some serious psychological problems, you're going to pursue the former. Um, <laughs> So that, yeah, that, it, there's a socioeconomic constraint. And then dietary supplements, there's also an epistemological constraint. But, and what I mean by constellative is that there is no such thing as supplement science. And the reason that there's no such thing as supplement science, this does relate, I guess, to the, the first socioeconomic argument, but the research that we use to create evidentiary supplements or evidence-based supplementation <clears throat> is in almost every instance, except for a small sliver of ingredients that are specifically consigned to performance enhancements in, in the context of sports nutrition, are being examined as therapeutic modalities for pathological conditions. And so they are constrained within hyper-specific sub-disciplines. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, there is no such thing as supplement science. It's too constellative for an educational institution to ever bring those things together. So when, when you're operating in a confluence between an epistemological constraint and a socioeconomic constraint, it, it seems to me thoroughly unlikely that there would ever be, that, that there would ever be an incentive structure created that mediates between that socioeconomic and epistemological constraint such that uh, any educational institution would find it worthwhile to create a curricular program. Curricular program. Yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've kind of hit everything on that. Like all the, some of the ingredients, that we see put in like, to, to, to bring it into like back to the sports nutrition sphere for the listeners. Like mm. we see things like vasodrive AP, pomegranate powder, um, extract. Yeah. All of yeah. these are for cardiovascular issues. Yes. It's not to make better pumps, improve nutrient blood yes. load for yes, you know, yes. increase your one rep max and all of that stuff. And so if it does, from those like, are tertiary effects or tertiary benefits associated with a therapeutic modality. Yeah, exactly. And so how would you ever get the, the, uh, the faculty in place 
to assess, like create a curriculum. Yes. We're gonna we're gonna distill everything down from these millions or maybe hundreds of thousands like? of compounds, and it's just yes. Like, what happen. would it look like? And then the analogy that I've, I kind of like uh, one of the sports that I am uh, most interested in following is mixed martial arts, mm-hmm. and mixed martial arts has had a rapid structural and therefore epistemic evolution, in that the first iteration of mixed martial arts, like what you might call mixed martial arts 1.0, was truly a mix of discrete martial arts. You would have a jiu-jitsu expert like Hoist Gracie um, fighting a shooto box individual or fighting a boxer. There was that r- ridiculous fight, I think it was, what was his name, Art Hall and uh, Hoist Gracie where the guy was wearing one boxing glove. Yeah. So then uh, there, there exists like, a, or there was established, I should say, a certain trajectory moving from MMA 1.0 to 2.0 specifically the Shamrocks, who decided to institute something called cross-training. So they were shooto box experts and shoot wrestling experts, and they decided to train with boxers. They decided to train with Taekwondo experts. But in MMA 2.0, everyone still had a very distinct or discrete base discipline. Then you move into MMA 3.0, which is like the era constituted by like Matt Matt Hughes, George St. Pierre, Anderson Silva, et cetera, where they were engaging not from the very start in cross training but cross training was a foundational training principle and now we're into mma 4.0 where kids are just training in a discrete thing called mixed martial arts that is integrative it is already integrating elements of traditional folk wrestling uh collegiate wrestling olympic like greco-roman wrestling Mm -hmm. taekwondo etc 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 you would need to see something similar obtain for the uh, a discrete thing we might label supplement science in order for there to be the the incentive structure requisite for a university or another educational institution to instantiate a program and i just don't i don't know what would induce us to move in that direction and the deep irony here is for you know for things like uh naturopathy that exists and yet Mm -hmm. Naturopathy has a huge legitimacy problem. Most, uh, most naturopaths I've met know nothing about evidence-based supplementation. You can get degrees in homeopathy, et cetera. So <laughs> these things <clears throat> that, that I think exist in a more dubious space, uh, a more dubious educational or evidentiary space as compared to supplement science. Nevertheless, because they don't exist specifically within the penumbra or shadow of, of the pharmaceutical industry, they've been able to carve out as a consequence a different socioeconomic niche, and therefore there are sufficient socioeconomic incentives for education, uh, educational institutions to set these things up. Yeah. But for us, in terms of evidence-based supplementation, no, I don't know. I, like I said, I just think it on epistemological constraint, it's too consultative, and on the socioeconomic constraint, I, there's just downward pressure being existed on a labor input basis where I don't think that it would ever be sufficiently remunerative, I guess, to create that program. Which sucks, but it does. At, at the same time, I almost wonder for there to be, I guess, a legitimate or, you know, where everybody kind of comes together and agrees on a, a set curriculum at a given university for that. Mm-hmm. Would that uh, almost force a mandate by like all the, the national governments to have even more uh, oversight and regulation, regulation. On the supplements? Yeah. And that's what that's yeah. the thing I don't know if I want to get into. Like, I, we, there already exists a set of rules that, by which we have to play. Um, are they always enforced? Do people always, in, you know, play by? Do companies always do best practices to abide by those principles? 
not always. Mm-hmm. There's some nefarious figures out there. Um, yeah. At the same time, I kind of like how it's a little bit more hands off. I don't know if I'd want, I don't know if I'd want to trade off the freedoms we have in the industry to experiment with, with in order to legitimize them creating an actual supplement degree, yeah. master's, PhD program, and whatnot. No, I don't. I don't think it's worth it. You know, it's very interesting. So I have a I have a pretty strong background in, in international compliance and regulatory, specifically market entry for dietary supplements, and. The, have you ever heard of a, a a political phenomenon called the Overton window? Yes, but I don't know exactly what it. I don't. I, I heard so, the term several yeah, years yeah. back. Think of like a, an Overton window as a Likert scale. A, a Likert scale is a specific sort of survey methodology that social scientists will use, where mm-hmm. you're asking people a multiple choice question, and it's spectral, so it's from least likely to most likely, or most angry to least. Right. Mm-hmm. An Overton window constitutes or I should say defines what constitutes legitimate political discourse in a given society on a range from least legitimate to most legitimate. Mm-hmm. And o- Overton windows don't create, but are reflective of social changes. And uh, we can talk about this later, but there, there's a very interesting duality there between, I think, cultural and political anthropology and evolutionary anthropology with respect to the way that um, evolutionary change it or sorry i should say uh food scarcity or 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 food availability changes always precede evolutionary changes because you have you have on a bioenergetic basis you need the input in order to change the output first so it's kind of functionally similar with respect to social or or political changes anyway um in the united states you guys have such an interesting and oftentimes I think because of the sectoralism and, and polarity in your guys' political situation, a very reductive Overton window with respect to the way that your guys' liberties are conferred by the state. So if you look at almost any other international market, there are some hyper permissive markets like Hong Kong, Singapore, which is a city state. But if, if you look at all of the other G8 countries, they have vastly more restrictive regimes with respect to uh, efficacy claims, safety claims, monographing, applying for and obtaining registration for dietary supplements. So you you, working through the EU directives, I think they're 63 and 83 with respect to registering dietary supplements, working through the non-prescription natural health product directorate and the natural health product regulations in Canada, working through the Pharmaceutical Affairs Act or the Cosmetic Hygiene Act, depending on your form factor and delivery system in Taiwan working through, if you're doing cosmetics in China, the CSAR, which is the um, Cosmetic Supervisory Administrative Regulations, they're vastly more restrictive, <laughs> like vastly more restrictive. When I when I hear people in the United States complain about the FDA being tyrannical, I just think if you, <laughs> if you had ever spent like hundreds of hours of your life, like I have arguing with Taiwanese officials about the specific percentage of terpenes in a compound and whether or not that conforms to their laws, you would understand how permissive the regulatory structure in the United States is. Now, maybe someone of a certain uh, political disposition or posture would say, I don't give a fuck because I'm an American and I'm a maximalist with respect to liberty. And I would be willing to debate that, but I'm just saying the Overton window with respect to international international compliance and regulatory structures yeah. in the United States is narrow. Anyways, to your point, I would not be willing to trade that window expanding in order for like legitimacy in, in this space or for some something like an, uh, a defined a defined and actionable curricula for supplement science to emerge. I think I think we're doing okay. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. And and to your point, I I completely agree with what you're saying about about like we have it so much easier for, to like get products to market and everything. <laughs> I'm not going to dispute that one second. For like, yeah, it's, right. it's so easy here compared to oh, like dude. I don't have much you experience know? getting stuff into other countries, but just the the a little bit of stuff, whether it's like EU products I've helped do or can, Canadian yes. stuff with NPNs and Health Canada and all that, man, yes. I'll, I'll take what we got to do here more head over fist every day. Oh, keep uh, the things I've gone. I just I, I'll write a biography one day of the things that like just the amount of, and it's it's great by the way. Actually, I think that in some ways that system is superior. It just depends on on your philosophical and political position with respect to the state's role in protecting its citizens citizenry versus. Mm-hmm whether or not that protection autom- automatically converts to tyranny or, or, or tyrannal, tyrannical oppression of freedoms. Mm-hmm. So there, it's interesting because there's a very complex sociopolitical argument with respect to how we erect regulatory structures. My problem is never deliberate malfeasance. My problem is ignorance. Regulations exist to me not to, because this is the argument that people always make. Well, uh, it's to... The, the small percentage of evil actors does not necessitate an overbearing regulatory structure. It has nothing to do with the small percentage of evil actors. It has something to do with the massive percent, percentage of people who are just ignorant with respect to how you properly manufacture a dietary supplement, how you do ingredient sequestration, how you ensure that your documentation lines up on a certificate of analysis, certificate of conformance basis, if you know what you're looking at. Um, all of these things create almost like a distributed network of ignorance that in its aggregation poses a legitimate risk to a population who cannot be expected on an individual basis to download all of the information requisite to protect themselves. There's no, there's no way for me for an average consumer to understand the vast, the vast amounts of knowledge they would need to understand how dietary supplements are manufactured. And that is the very purpose of the state. The purpose of the state is for cognitive outsourcing. This is what institutions are for, whether or not they're institutions in a free market system that are created on the basis of private enterprise or whether or not they are, they are state institutions created on the basis of the state's legitimate no- monopoly on the use of violence. The purpose of them regardless is that humans don't have a deep memory reservoirs. So everything in our socioeconomic context uh, functions as a repository for cognitive outsourcing. Think of like the function of a sign. If we could all internalize where to go in an airport, and if we could memorize and recall that information without any difficulty, there would be no purpose for signs. There'd be no purpose for street signs. That is the purpose of, the, and that's just like a, a concrete physical example. Well, well, institutions have the same role. Institutions are repositories for aggregated knowledge mm-hmm. on, a, on a compliance and regulatory basis. And this is theoretical. Again, I'd be willing to have this um, complex sort of a political and philosophical argument with someone who disagrees with me, but my interpretation is that the purpose of um, compliance and regulatory structures and federal regulatory authorities is to function as a repository of the collective knowledge requisite to protect people. From yeah, so in almost that way, you're, you're, yeah, you're approaching it more, I guess, from the side of protect the, the common individual, reduce things for the greater good, whereas the other side of it might be, hey, we're going to trust that everybody's just doing things good by yes, nature. And exactly. if you've got, so yes. it's just coming at from kind of a different yes. and I don't, opposite end of spectrum. And I don't, I don't assume that the surety or verisimilitude of my position there, because as I said, it's an inherently complicated argument of uh, political philosophy. 
Mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying that that's my specific interpretation of why regulatory programs exist. That's their internal justification. It's the justification for the existence of the state from a specifically constrained form of liberalism, I guess. Um, and I, working through just the deep and obnoxious bureaucracy of other countries, I've seen both sides. So, yeah. right, for me, like, I can see the benefit of a more lascivious or promiscuous regulatory structure in that it does encourage private enterprise. But working for USP Labs, for example, I've seen the detriment to having that more permissive structure where there exists no post-market enforcement mechanism. So both in a domestic context, I've seen both sides. And then in an international compliance and regulatory context, I've seen both sides. Like I said, I've spent, without exaggeration, hundreds of hours of my life developing totally novel compliance and regulatory arguments to introduce regulatory problematic ingredients or formulations in international markets. And I've thought, why am I, why is this necessary? This should be much easier. But when you look at the rate of serious adverse events for dietary supplements in other countries as compared to the United States, it's considerably smaller, mm-hmm. considerably smaller. So then, then it becomes like an ethical question of how, like I said, how you intercede between those two competing philosophical concerns. I don't know the answer. I can, I, as I said, I can just say on a practical basis, mm-hmm. I understand why regulatory structures exist. And then on a philosophical basis, I can understand why people advocate for an even more permissive regulatory structures compared to what we have now. Yeah. And that's what's great. Like the conversations we have, the ones I have with Joey over at Glaxon, a bunch of other people, it's like, mm-hmm. you can have these kind of nuances. It's not like this is the only way it's got to no. be. There, there's, there's, there's many, many shades of gray with, you know, every issue, especially in the supplement yeah. industry. I think um, the, like absolutist terminology, like always and never, mm-hmm. I think that their legitimate deployment is exclusively within a theological context everything else and i don't i don't mean to be trite or cliche but everything else is shades of gray yeah yeah no i would i would agree with that and it's it's sexy alluring to say you know to take a hard line stance mm-hmm. on something but very rarely i mean more often than that, that points to ignorance or you're, you're just yes. trying to be controversial yeah. rather than having a deep understanding of what what's at play here yeah that john stuart mills a famous political philosopher has a quote he, he says something like the person who only knows their own side knows little of that. So in, in other words, knowledge is especially linguistic knowledge because you could say like the, there is bodily or corporeal knowledge in the way that your body obtains like muscle memory. But mm-hmm. for co- like specifically mental representational knowledge, it's fundamentally linguistic, which means it's fundamentally discursive. Language can't exist outside the context of discourse and discourse always has that combative adversarial or positive nature to it. And so when you take absolute positions, essentially you're trying to contradict the fundamental nature of knowledge and language, which to me just doesn't make any sense. Um, I have incredibly strong positions, I I do, but I always try to mediate or mitigate, I should say, against that tendency by opening myself up to the possibility that I might be just fucking catastrophically wrong. I, it's never lost on me that everything I think could be wildly stupid and wrong. I think about that all the time. Even when I, before I come on these podcasts, I have a little bit of social anxiety because I think I'm going to say something that is just fucking catastrophically idiotic from which I'll never be able to recover. This is what occupies my thoughts. Um, specifically because I am an auto autodidact. I like, I've never, uh, I've never half the terms I use. I've never heard them uttered aloud. 
because I've only read them. So yeah. I'll make a mistake with respect to pronunciation and feel like a rube when I'm, you know, talking to somebody with a PhD. But there's that sense of humility that you need to approach everything with. And I think that's especially true, by the way, with respect to the human body in complex biological systems. When people approach things in that, with that absolutist stance, it, I don't know, I, I tend to dismiss them almost entirely. And unfortunately, yeah. I, I think that there are, with the sort of algorithmic ordering and configuration of attention, it, it predisposes people to take absolutist positions because we know for a fact that algorithmic virality is contingent upon arising the strongest um, negative affects like resentment, anger, rage. So there, there is always an incentive that, that exists on social media, which has become the primarily, primary informational distribution center to take sort of absolutist positions. Because what are you going to do on an Instagram caption? Have a heavily nuanced, you know, it's, just, it, it's not, not everyone can do that. Now, that being said, I do think that you can create that space. So I, I don't want to be onanistic, which is just a fancy word for jerking yourself off. But when I was associated with arms race nutrition, I did a segment every Saturday called Science Saturday, where I would smoke a cigar, and for however long it took for me to smoke a Robusto, I would just answer questions, uh, and whatever they want to know. Most of them were not related to supplement science. Like they, they would be like about quantum gravity or the Planck scale or the simulation hypothesis from Nick Bostrom. And that was always our most consumed content by, and we're talking by like an exponential factor. It's like an order of magnitude. So I've always been in the position that it's possible to have nuanced dialogues, but you're working against the current, I think. There's a very strong incentive not to engage in nuanced dialogue. The brevity of social media, I think, fulminates or agitates against long-form discussion. But there are, there are forms where it's possible. But yeah, I, I'm not interested in absolutist discussions, whether it's on the topic of political philosophy or whether it's on the topic of exercise physiology. There's always contradictory data. What I try to do is find consensus to adopt a paradigm. Mm -hmm. And then I demand extraordinary evidence to overcome that paradigm. But it has happened to me many, many times throughout my career that I've had to make a paradigmatic shift. And that's one of the most exciting things for me when I find out that I was catastrophically wrong. Nothing is more exciting than realizing everything I thought was stupid. I just, I, whenever that happens to me, it's the mo I'm the most ebullient uh, I'll be for months because I think that is awesome. Like finding out that you're a fucking moron and that everything you thought was wrong, is like, that's great. Think of all the opportunities that you have to become correct. I don't wanna be wrong for a single second longer than I need to be. So I actively seek out oppository positions. At, now at the same time, anyone who knows me or dis discusses anything with me at length knows I don't speak unless I have an evidential base basis to speak. So I'm not saying that I'm easy to persuade. I'm just always open to be persuaded. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of things I want to touch on. First, you said the brevity of social media. And I think that's why I've typically always shied away from it just because it seems like I like long form stuff. Like I don't mind watching a yep. 10 hour mini series of something that's on Netflix or Amazon prime. If, it, if it's like the history of the mafia, I don't want to see that in a one and a half hour movie. I want to see like a 15 right. hour series on it. Same thing. Like I love to write those in-depth blog posts on ingredient breakdowns or these different mechanisms in the body or these, these podcasts, which mm -hmm. could last, you know, one, two, I've had one go three hours before, but it's, uh, it's these, because 
when you get to that topic, then you can start going down all these different wormholes and tangents and forks mm -hmm. and everything. And it just makes for a really, really great and engaging conversation. If you're of the mindset to kind of go into those kind of things. Now, if you're not, and you're just yes. want like the drive by highlights, then, you know, go watch sports center. You know, that's, that's, I loved mm -hmm. watching that when I was a kid, but at the same time, it's, it, it's these kind of engaging in depth conversations. And if you can change my mind, like that happened maybe a year, year and a half ago, I was having a conversation with uh, Ben Esgro who is the owner, he used to run DeNovo Supplements, it's now turned into elemental formulations that he does with Omar Isuf. And he's okay, he's got, um, I've always been of the mind, like, look, L-tyrosine is better than N-acetyl-tyrosine. Yeah, N-acetyl-tyrosine is more water-soluble. That doesn't necessarily mean um, that it's going to necessarily lead to better bioavailability because in the studies where they've paired tyrosine against NALS, yes. regular tyrosine came out better and then Ben brought up the point that those the those were done IV studies, so they didn't have a chance to pass yes. the liver. So there they could have, have been that. I about, exactly, yeah. I was about to say that like this is a very problem to the extent that supplement science exists. Yeah. Um, intravenous infusion studies are always necessarily misleading because the first gate in the body is the epithelial lumen, and the epithelial lumen has a molecular limit. It, it also has a limitation with respect to the body's level of plasma osmolality at that specific moment. Um, like, for example, if somebody has IBS, their absorption probability, their upper absorption limit due to the way in which um, unfermented carbohydrates are going to affect the ways in which uh, small molecules can be diffused through the small intestine, mm -hmm. their, um, which then impacts their plasma, plasma osmolality, which then impacts the water retention in the epithelial, uh, epithelial lumen. That has a determinative impact in the way in which they're going to absorb a compound. So, and then, the, then you also need to consider the difference between absorption rates and bioavailability rates because those are slightly different. They're related phenomenon, like um, absorption is contained within bioavailability. It's one of the determinative factors. But you need to take these things into consideration. This was when, I, you know, I was having those contentious discussions with everyone, being an asshole about BCAs versus EAs. That was my point, was like... I remember those. It, yeah, like if, if you take someone and you make them fast overnight and then you bring them into a lab and you undergo a two to three hour e equilibration period, right? Because they're, especially when you're using the phenyl phenylalanine clearance method for mm -hmm. uh, assessing uh, amino acid pharmacokinetics, then you have this two hour equilibration period where you're equilibrating the free floating pool of amino acids. Uh, I'm sorry, I should say that's the equilibration period. And then you're having the infusion period of isotopically labeled leucine and phenylalanine, and you're measuring the rate of clearance because phenylalanine's only physiological destination in, in um, muscular tissue is for protein synthesis. So you're looking at the rate of clearance, which by the way is itself misleading. It's highly misleading. And I know it's misleading because the individual who shit on BCAAs, Robert Wolf, was the same individual who published a study saying that the measuring the rate of endogenous leucine metabolite production by a factor of about 30% is a more accurate methodology for assessing uh, um, amino acid-induced, uh, branched-chain amino acid-induced muscle protein synthesis. Anyway, so then you have this equilibration period, two to three hours, then you have an infusion period, two to three hours, and then you're measuring them at 60, 80, 240 minutes. And then you say they're not synthesizing protein. Well, no shit. Is that is that does that mirror the use condition of like BCAAs? I don't typically take BCAAs after fasting for twenty fucking hours and then go to the gym. Like, and my point all along was, in use conditions that are similar to the average use case for dietary supplements, 
what are the differential rates in how EAAs and BCAAs, BCAAs are EAAs, the three of the nine EAAs, what are the differential rates in terms of increasing, uh, what is, sorry, the, the difference in terms of increasing the fractional rate of muscle protein synthesis? Very small. And then, <clears throat> not to be too much of a nerd, but this is part of the reason why my thinking has changed. Then you also have to think of it with respect to homeostatic adaptations. I've mm -hmm. become very suspicious lately of mechanistic, mechanistic formulations or, or taking a, um, a study that demonstrates how a compound modulates a specific mechanism of action and then extrapolating. Because what I've discovered lately through, as I said, becoming vastly more interested in bioenergetics within the context of evolutionary anthropology is that the body is so fundamentally adaptive that I'm not certain that it's legitimate any longer to extrapolate from mechanism of action to systemic effects. And mm -hmm. this seems to be true with respect to the exogenous administration of amino acids. Um, the, the famous, I think it's the Mobert al. study in 2016, where they compared the administration of six grams whole protein with EAA, BCAA, et cetera. There's mm -hmm. no difference. Uh, if you disaggregate the time scales and then recalculate the means, which they didn't do, I think because they were incentivized to make a specific point with regard to whether or not EAAs are a better therapeutic modality for sarcopenia or clinical muscle wasting in elderly populations. When you do that, you find out there's no, there's no difference. There's no difference whatsoever. And that more mirrors the average use case because it's combining BCAAs, EA, BCAAs and EAAs with a whole protein source. Mm -hmm. So if you look at them with respect to mechanisms of action at that level, EAAs seem vastly superior. When you move up a level of conceptual resolution and the liminal period in between these spaces of conceptual re resolution is determined by the homeostatic adaptation of the human biological system, mm -hmm. it gets extraordinarily complicated. The, the, I think this is why I've, I've kind of come full circle. I went from looking at large, like, uh, how should I say this? More brute force studies, not examining the mechanism of action, just looking at the effect on the biological system overall with respect to bioenergetics. Was there an increase right. or decrease in tissue? And then thinking that was an unsophisticated way of doing evidence-based supplement, supplement formulation, looking deeper at the mechanisms of action, and then I've now come full circle and think that that maybe is an unsophisticated way of looking at it. <laughs> this is, by the way, is one of the parad paradigmatic changes I've had even since the last time we spoke, just, uh, yeah, sort of being very humbled by the most recent research in bioenergetics, realizing what levers you can actually pull just based on how powerful the body's adaptive mechanisms are has changed my position on exercise physiology and has therefore changed my position on which sorts of skew verticals, for example, are even viable to create. Taking that the next step further then, how do we, if, so you could maybe formulate a product based on the, like you said, the brute force, like what's the actual tangible mm -hmm. real world results of that ingredient? Then, you know, we could, a lot of people or the, the, the nerdier ones among us try to formulate maybe based off mechanisms or stuff that has complementary effects mm -hmm. like CDP choline plus Hooperzine plus acetyl-L-carnitine yes. where you're hitting yeah. acetylcholine from three different angles. If we're yeah. not going to do that or maybe we'll migrate away from that a little bit, how do you formulate a supplement these days or how, what's your philosophy, you know, mentality that's, when you're approaching a product? Yeah, that's such, a, that's such a good question. I think you need to do both. So. Can I, should I explain maybe why I'm, I'm thinking this way? So yeah, have, absolutely. Have you ever heard of a guy named Herman Ponzer? Herman Ponzer wrote a book in, 
in 2021 called Burn, and I'm pretty sure he is a bioenergetics researcher at Duke. His background is in evolutionary anthropology. And he did a, a set of, I think, three studies. Um, so the initial results were replicated. By the way, these results are well replicated across mammalian species. These results have been replicated in, I'm pretty sure, uh, rats, mice, birds, uh, rabbits, monkeys too. And so he was examining the total daily energy expenditure of the Hadza people. The Hadza people are one of like two, a handful of two to three remaining hunter-gatherers, like true foragers. They have no agriculture, no developed agriculture, and therefore no common source of calories. So as a consequence, irrespective of gender, age, and they don't have anything like a social hierarchy, most individuals in the Hadza tribe are walking on order of 30 to 40,000 steps a day, which is a considerable amount of caloric expenditure, right? So... If you had to guess, what would you think that their total daily energy expenditure is relative to the average sedentary Western individual? I mean, I've got I've got this little Fitbit, and I average about fifteen thousand steps a day. You couple that in with a, mm -hmm. a typical resistance training workout, I'm burning about thirty two hundred to thirty four hundred on a given day. I'm assuming they're probably mm -hmm. north of five thousand calories. Exact same. Really, their bodies exact have downregulated their energy expenditure to be more efficient. Thank you. For Christ's sakes, thank you. You are the first person who I've ever told this to who hasn't argued with me because you understand that the body is adaptive. That's precisely what's happening. So irrespective of gender, age, the determinative factor for the total daily energy expense, and I'll explain how they came to this conclusion on the methodological basis in yeah. case people are concerned. The average total daily energy expenditure for men adjusted for lean body mass, so fat-free mass, FFM, Right. exactly equivalent to the Western sedentary individuals. They've replicated the study on three separate occasions. Fat-free mass explains total daily energy expenditure at a factor of 0.7. So if people are not, not familiar with statistical analyses, that means that 70% of the variance between individuals is explained by this single factor. Now, you might say, what about the remaining 30%? Well, well that's genomically determined effects like uh, hormones, for example, the rate uh, at which you pr produce hormone-sensitive lipase or the rate at which adenosine monophosphate kinase is phosphorylated in adipocytes to right to, to activate uh, lipolysis, how it determines the rate of acetyl-CoA carboxylase or monocoa decarboxylase production, which is a rate-limiting step in uh, free fatty acid oxidation. That's probably 0.28 or 0.2. So not on order of 95% is determined as a mixture between fat free mass and then genetically determined factors, which leaves maybe if you really read the research and you squint your eyes real hard, maybe leaves, I don't know, 5% or less, probably much less, I'd be willing to say much less, maybe 1% due to discretionary exercise activity. So I'll explain how they how they found this result, like the, mm -hmm. their methodology is actually extraordinarily sophisticated and represents the standard methodology if you're going to like one of the best sports nutrition or exercise physiology labs on the planet like at Baylor, which by the way is who in their first study is who calculated their data. It was a professor at Baylor, so the data science was done properly. They used uh, isotopically labeled water. So mm -hmm. uh, obviously with water you have hydrogen and then two oxygen. So they isotopically labor, label these and then measure them against the rate of expulsion for carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. It's essentially the best measure that you can get of caloric expenditure because regardless of the type of exercise, if it is consuming calories, you're getting that exchange. 
and then they sent the data off and then they they did a, a number of uh, other biometric analyses like step counters and measured their weight like dry versus wet weight with respect to their their fluid retention and expulsion and they replicated the study on three separate occasions and what they found again is that i can't emphasize enough fat-free mass was the determinative factor so their explanation was precisely what you said is that as you increase discretionary bioenergetic expenditure measured in the form of calories, which by the way is a somewhat arbitrary way to measure, you could measure it in kilojoules or anything else that you wanted, yeah. as long as it's a relevant measure of um, energy, that as you increase the rate of discretionary caloric expenditure, your body downregulates a lot of the mechanisms associated with your autonomic nervous system because that exercise itself is making those systems more efficient. So there's always this linear relationship between an increase in exercise activity and the efficiency of bodily systems, whereas in the, the obverse is true for individuals that are sedentary. Mm -hmm. Their bodily systems are functionally inefficient. So there's a higher metabolic cost associated with just existing because for example, they have a higher rate of inflammatory cytokine production like TNF1-alpha, and TNF1-alpha is heavily uh, involved in cell apoptosis, but also cellular proliferation. It, it's going to make every bodily system more inefficient. Protein synthesis is more inefficient, lipolysis of fat is more inefficient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So there, the point that I'm trying to make, and the reason why this has made me more skeptical with respect to sports nutrition is that Kiko calories in versus calories out it, it's too simplistic because it never takes into consideration how powerful are the body's homeostatic mechanisms. It is true that the body um, is an adiabatically cooled system, and so therefore it must conform to the second law of thermodynamics. You, you know this mm -hmm. as an engineer. The problem is that the body's not a perfectly closed system, and it's not a fixed system of en energy production or consumption. Correct. It is it's homeostatic, it, it, right? It's yeah. as if your car could, on the fucking fly, <laughs> decide to change its fuel mileage in accordance with your needs. Now, modern cars are sort of starting to be able to do that, so now it's becoming a better analogy. Mm -hmm. But imagine that as you drove your car more, it became more fuel efficient as opposed to less fuel efficient. <laughs> so imagine the, the friction and heat associated with an internal combustion engine rather than making your car less fuel efficient it made it more fuel efficient and that is essentially hap what's happening with your body the more you drive it the more efficient it becomes now the reason why this is paradigmatic for me is that it fundamentally changes which physiological levers i think are legitimate for us to pull in a sports nutrition context especially with respect to something like a thermogen an ostensibly thermogenic compound my position now is that the body's going to adapt if the body if the body can sufficiently adapt to forty thousand steps per day to make the Hadza total daily energy expenditure equivalent to the average Western individual who engages in less than 30 minutes of exercise per week, where obesity rates are anywhere from like 40 to 50%, depending on the, the country and in the region within that country that you're examining, yeah. uh, you know, it can adapt to green coffee bean extract. That is my, that's like my, <laughs> you know what I mean? my no, that's, that's the my, magic weight loss pill. Come on, Kenton, you're just yeah. killing the whole industry. <laughs> so that's, uh, and there, and I don't want anyone to misinterpret me. So let me get back to your original question was how, how do we interpret the data? Because it's related. I think that you just need to better parameterize which sort of lever you're pulling. If you're telling me you're pulling the energy expenditure lever, I will tell you that the supplement is probably not efficacious. If you're telling me you're pulling a lever with respect to dietary conformance, with respect to increasing exercise performance, because that has like a, uh, that has a downstream effect 
on bioenergetics because obviously a fat-free mass explains total daily energy expenditure at a factor of 0.7. Increasing your fat-free mass is going to increase your rates of energy expenditure, which then would have a downstream effect on the amount of calories that you could consume, which may make it more psychologically viable to engage in a long-term hypocaloric diet because you've relativized the amount of calories that you're consuming. So performance supplements that are gonna increase your rate of fat-free mass uh, tissue hypertrophy, great. I could get on board for that. Yeah. Supplements that are ostensibly meant to increase your energy expenditure and therefore help you lose weight. No, I'm no, I'm no longer on board with those. And then in terms of how you examine the literature, I think you need, it has to be a com combinatory approach. So in other words, if you want to understand what actual effect in, in terms of what, uh, uh, at the highest, uh, lowest level of conceptual resolution, but highest level of efficacy, which just means like the rate of tissue change. Yeah. You have to examine studies that are well-designed. So randomized, uh, placebo-controlled, um, and double-blind. You have to examine those. If you want to understand why they are having an effect, then you actually need to look into the more me mechanistic studies, because then you might may, may, may be able to make a valid inference with respect to the synergistic effect between combining two compounds, or like you said, whether or not, um, you know, we, we can pull a lever related to cholinesterase or something like that, whether or not that's effective in terms of a, 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 an ostensible synergistic effect. So I think it needs to be combinatory. I think you need to combine combine data from both levels of analysis in order to get a true portrait. My position, though, I think is that the buck stops at the level of tissue tissue exchange, right? Like you need, I think in order to make that sort of claim, I think you need to have some level of evidence. And, and precisely because, like I said, in that liminal space between mechanism of action and actual rate of tissue loss or tissue deposition, whether or not that is adipose or muscle, like muscle tissue deposition or just fat-free tissue deposition, like glycogen, et cetera, food retention. Um, the adaptive mechanisms in between those two levels of conceptual scale are so powerful, they are so mediatory, that I'm no longer convinced that you can extrapolate from a mechanistic state to the level of tissue tissue conservation deposition or loss. Yeah. And it's, I, I guess sticking along the same line of like the weight loss supplements, thermogenics, I mean, we see paradoxine, GBB, a bunch of these you know, non-stim thermogenics that are thrown in there. And there, there's one or two short-term studies on each of these ingredients that shows, hey, ramps up energy expenditure by maybe 50 to 100 calories over the course yep. of a day. And at the end of eight weeks, maybe there's an, a slight improvement in body composition. I don't think it's got like the body, same thing we've seen with caffeine before. Like the first time you introduce caffeine to somebody, their energy yes. expenditure shoots up by 50 to 100 yes. calories. But oh, you take that every day for four weeks, it's going to level out eventually. Your body's going to do something. Yes. And it just... It's just this. I, I think the same way with respect to um, exercise modalities. Like mm -hmm. people think that it's just a linear and bijective relationship. Bijective in terms of CI calories in corresponds bijectively or directly to CO calories out. It doesn't. There's a whole set of things mediating that relationship in between that are important to take into consideration. It's linear in terms of. Mm -hmm. Every unit of expenditure corresponds directly to a unit of caloric um, caloric. Out. No, it doesn't. It doesn't appear to work work that way whatsoever. Again, because the body body is so powerfully adaptive, so it's like 
people think, okay, well, if I just do X amount of cardio, I'll burn 500 more calories, and then I don't need to change my diet. Do that. Do that for eight weeks, <laughs> right? And see where you end up. Yeah. yeah, weight you lose. Like this Herman Ponzer dude, I think he was an advisor to the World Health Organization with respect to and de developing programs to cure the obesity ep epidemic in developed countries. Mm -hmm. And he has tried desperately without success to get them to take exercise out as a recommendation with respect to controlling the obesity epidemic, because it's just uh, to, to any functional sense that we can measure, it appears to solely be related to the relationship between calories in and your fat, fat free mass, and not even fat mass, by the way, that's the more distressing thing when you start calculating your calories for a hypochloric pharmacy. You, you know, you really shouldn't take into consideration your fat mass. But anyway, um, so yeah, then you have to then you have to say, okay, and I'm glad that you brought this up. You're presenting me with a piece of data which shows an increase in energy expenditure through whatever mechanism, right? Increased mm -hmm. rate of fatty acid oxidation. Great. Over how long? Right. Over how long? Because Losing weight is a longitudinal phenomenon. It's not an acute phenomenon, it's a long-term phenomenon. And what you increasingly find is that when you look at the data with respect to levels of cardiovascular exercise, comparisons between short, intense bouts of exercise like uh, high-intensity interval training or steady-state cardio, the proponents on both sides will say, well, look at the rate of uh, fatty acid clearance in this study. Well, no, it's higher in this one. Okay, is that relevant over 24 hours? And it's not, and then you always have to almost like test the conceptual null hypothesis. Okay, so the rate of fatty acid expenditure was greater. Do you know what your body does? Reduces the rate of glycogenic clearance or like glu glucose-based expenditure. Yeah, so uh, that's where it, it's exactly. like a shifting scale almost, yeah. Constantly, exactly. So if you have like these two primary substrates, you have glucose and lipids, right? Mm -hmm. You increase expenditure in one, deposition increases in the other because your body has a genetically determined caloric expenditure limitation and it is always going to homeostatically adapt to pull one lever and shut off one lever such that that expenditure rate never changes. So it's like, great, you are increasing the rate of fatty acid expenditure. You're also increasing the rate of fatty acid deposition. And then even if you're decreasing the rate of fatty acid deposition to become intramuscular triglycerides, you might be reducing the rate of glycogenesis, which is precisely the opposite of what you want. So right. these long-term data tend to demonstrate that, which by the way, you have no idea. <laughs> like, I have, I've gotten into the most partisan debates with people being totally intransigent just tied to the idea that they can do more cardio and lose weight. I think maybe because there's like almost a religious adherence to the idea of Kiko. Yeah. But you are precisely right. Is it it's adaptive. You increase the rate of expenditure in one tissue. Okay, well you're reducing the rate of expenditure in another tissue. And they will be equivalent. All like charitas paribus, all other things being equal, the body will uh equilibrate between the two over a shockingly brief time frame. Yeah to ensure that the total daily energy expenditure remains constant and causatively related to your fat-free mass. So then this has, if you take this data seriously, which I do, it has a massive implication for the sorts of supplements that would be effective to take. Now, this does not mean that thermogenic compounds are useless. And the reason why I don't think they're useless is that that only relates to the most macroscopic level, which is the, the total tissue amount. It does not refer to tissue composition. So there could be an argument for taking certain compounds 
that um, simultaneously increase the fractional rate of muscle protein synthesis and increase the rate of fatty acid expenditure. Like I said, you, you would have to explain to me how it's not gonna mediate on the glycogenic side of things and how that mm -hmm. wouldn't be deleterious over sufficiently long time scales. And then there are certain compounds uh, that do all of these things, that mediate all of these things like a berberine, which is absolutely yeah. uh, increasing the rate of fatty acid oxidation in adipocytes, but it's simultaneously decreasing mTOR expression in myocytes, so you're probably getting a reduced rate of muscle protein synthesis. That could only be overcome with like a very high infusion of, of exogenous androgens or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that berberine would be a perfect or an emblematic example of this entire problem is that berberine is great at doing these things over here. And I used to be a massive advocate for berberine until yeah. I realized, oh, fuck, it's also doing all of this stuff over here that I don't want. And so probably, right. probably the total level of tissue deposition remains constant. Mm -hmm. But like I said, that I, I think there are spaces where someone could persuasively argue to me that on a compositional basis, it's still worthwhile to take these compounds. In, specifically in order to change the ratio between fat mass and fat-free mass, mm -hmm. even though the total rate of expenditure remains constant, that I, I could be persuaded there. I just, but you'd, you'd have to do a lot of work to persuade me that most formulas are doing, <laughs> which I don't think. Yeah. Are, I guess like <laughs> um, along the lines of berberine, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I like the ingredient a lot. Just just overall general health benefits, you know, it, it, it stimulates AMP-K, which has an inverse relationship with mTOR muscle protein synthesis for the listeners that may yeah. not understand kind of that back and forth relationship that it's got the tug of war it's got. So yes. um, yeah, yeah. blood sugar health, longevity, you know, it's, it's shown to be as effective in certain trials as metformin. Metformin, um, yeah, more effective in some, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and without some of the nasty side effects that metformin might have on a case yes, for certain individuals. To be crude, it's not going to make you continuously shit your pants for the entire duration of taking it. Like at some point, you'll, it, it, it will actually correct uh, the gut microbiota. That's, that's the reason why it induces gastrointestinal distress. Over time, it's actually corrective for microflora. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that's fine. Um, you know, if, if you're somebody that is trying to, and that's what's always baffled me about these uh, glucose disposal agents in particular, take it with your pre-workout meal or take it with your post-workout meal. I'm thinking you do not want to be taking berberine, rather even if it's like a fraction of a cent. If you're a natural athlete trying to maximize everything, you don't want to be jacking up AMPK and down-regulating mTOR <laughs> before exactly. or after your, right. your yeah, workout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe the, the stimulus, uh, the catalyst that physical activity has overpowers the physiological effect of berberine. See, we don't have that data, so. that's you know. It's funny you say that. That was always my argument with uh, berberine and berberine. I, I, my argument was always that I think the physical stimulus of contractile exercise is yeah. sufficiently in, in, inducive for mTOR and mm -hmm. it more powerfully regulates that entire protein cascade from PI3K to protein kinase B to mTOR that it probably overcomes the mitigatory effect of berberine. But yeah. I'm no longer comfortable saying that because we don't have the data now. Right. And this is, this is so this, ah, this is such a great example. So someone might say to me, well, when you look at the, the data in non-insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus patients, over time, the relationship between fat-free mass and uh, fat mass changes. It's not just that they have a higher rate of loss versus controls. So when they when they take a look about when you take a look, sorry, at those studies where they're administering berberine, there's not just a higher rate of loss, and it's not just that it cor corrects for total triglycerides 
corrects for the HDL, LDL balance. It does a lot of really amazing things for these people in these conditions, but they have a higher rate of retention for fat-free mass and a higher rate of loss for fat mass. My problem is though, is that's a pathological condition. Are you gonna see the same results with somebody who's not, non who does not have non-insulin dependent diabetes mouse or, or someone who's just not obese? Because it's yeah. not like, when you take a look at those, those studies, those more, those, those levels, the lowest level of conceptual resolution but highest level of efficacy, mm -hmm. it's not just that these people have diabetes mellitus, they're overwhelmingly obese. So when you look at the BMI distribution of these studies, these people are almost exclusively obese. So in a situation of normal glycemia, where someone does not have any ma major glycemic impediment and where they are not obese, you would again have more trouble now. Even though I've, I've put berberine in everything. I've like, I, it's like the duct tape with supplementation. I love it for a whole host of reasons from uh, hormone signal transduction to like you said, it, it is a correct, fascinatingly, it's a corrective for polycystic ovarian syndrome to a greater yeah, degree than strange. Yeah, like, like very impressive effects in, in POCS. So for a whole host of reasons, I take berberine every day and I've taken berberine every day for 10 years. I just no longer take it for the reasons I thought I was taking it before, precisely yeah. because I think for, for someone like me who is active and who, who has no indications or symptomatology of non-insulin-dependent diabetes and all this, who have measured, measured my rate of glucose disappearance, um, I just, I don't know that berberine is having that effect. Now, this yeah. is, I guess, what I was trying to say when I said I was, I'm bound by an NDA for these two projects, but they're atypical based on my history. Mm -hmm. That's precisely how I'm pivoting in my career is turning to these compounds like berberine and saying, okay, they may not be effective in this context of tissue conservation or hypertrophy because the body is so adaptive, but why should that be my only concern? I think I've been obsessively preoccupied with that specific physiological lever ignoring that as bodybuilders or gym rats, we're, we are already pulling the levers that we need to pull with respect to tissue conservation or hypertrophy. What we should be more concerned with is the general health aspect. And it turns out that all of these compounds that we were taking probably for the wrong reasons, we were ignoring them for all the right reasons, which is how they were originally investigated. Like, as right. you said, a lot, a lot of these compounds that have a proliferative effect on ENOS, endothelial nitric oxide synthase, they're not looking at them for a pump, right? They're not looking at them. They're looking at them because they increase your dilatory tone uh, as a preventative measure for cardiovascular problems or for mitigating against ischemic events. And that's why you should take them. Right. Because probably over time, um, they're not going to be as effective for the pump but they'll probably be continuously effective in other tissues, specifically because that nitric oxide synthase pathway works differently in smooth versus skeletal muscle systems. And that is related again to this evolutionary anthropological explanation that muscle is very costly. Like your body has, your body almost has like a, this bioenergetic economy where incentive structures exist in the body, just like they do exist in, in politics or social structures, like we talked about earlier. Yeah. And your body has a strong incentive against accreting muscle tissue because it's so metabolically costly. And it has a very strong incentive for accreting fat tissue because it's metabolically productive and it's metabolically uh, efficient to maintain. So of course it makes sense that all of these mechanisms tend to be biased against conserving or increasing the rate of fat-free tissue and biased towards increasing the rate of conservation or hypertrophy of fat tissue. So that is, again, yet another reason to be more skeptical about what these compounds are doing. Yeah. 
do you think we've kind of hit the ceiling for what we can do from an actual real world uh, yes. affecting the body? Have we hit a ceiling with what 100%. we can do with nutrition supplements? Like we know protein powder, we know creatine. Everything else is kind of, we're measuring it against those two things. And so like, <laughs> yes. or even uh, ca like caffeine is right here too. And so we're like, yeah. everything's trying to butt up there, but nothing's going to have the, the, the real think, world results like those ingredients. Yeah, you've like picked my brain exactly. That's precisely what I think. And, and I think that, so again, it's a very interesting discussion because all, all the, that's why I said it's constellative because all mm -hmm. of these things constellate under the broad rubric of what, like the essential question we're asking is, what is the purpose of dietary supplementation? So you need to answer that question in order to parameterize how you construct dietary supplements in order to address that prime directive and right underneath that prime directive is what is the maximal rate of efficiency or, or uh, sorry, not efficiency, uh, efficacy for dietary supplements. And there are a few cornerstone supplements would have, which have set the upper limit for efficacy, which we know when you take them do change this tissue uh, conservation deposition or um, hi, uh, hypertrophy or no, not uh, uh, catabolism rate, sorry, deposition um, conservation and catabolism uh and everything else yeah is just butting up against it and then anything that exceeds those is now definitionally a drug so i in right like it's because it's two different questions do i think that we've reached the limit of pharmacology no in dietary supplements of what constant yeah i think we probably have because anything that transgresses that upper limitation by definition is starting to treat, prevent, cure, mitigate a disease or its associated disease states. And so then on a compliance and regulatory basis and a definitional basis, it's, it's a drug. I think that that's precisely right. And then I'm glad that you identified those. If there's like these old stalwarts of our space that we're always trying to exceed and then they are obnoxiously recalcitrant in terms of their, in terms of their evidentiary record of like protein powder, Maybe you could throw uh, amino acids in there and whatever constitution, mm -hmm. caffeine, creatine, <laughs> those like those constitute that obnoxious, like just absolutely intransigent upper limit on efficacy. And like you said, everything else is trying to exceed those. And more and more we find out that it doesn't. Now, again, this does not mean that we shouldn't take supplements. Sure. It just means that you need to market things within a, a, a narrower range of optimization. So if you look at... If you look at the brands uh, that I, that I co-founded, in different way or participated in, in the case of Core, they, I tried my best to have the marketing, which was one of my primary responsibilities there, operate within that narrow range of optimization. So I haven't, mm -hmm. I haven't, I have no idea what's on any of those websites now. But when I was responsible for that website content, the Core write-ups, for example, Doug and I would actually go back and forth quite a bit. He always wanted me to, I think, to say a little bit more than I was comfortable saying. So if you read the core write-ups, again, I, they may have changed now, but when I was writing them, they were always very clear. This data is only in animals. This is only in vitro data. No human data exists. So it's telling like a caveat mTOR that if you want to take this understanding that there is an upper limit to this evidentiary standard with this ingredient, you should do that. But you should know that here is the evidence. I think if you approach our space, sports nutrition, with that sense of humility, I'm still willing to operate within its confines. It's just what I'm increasingly against is over-promising and under-delivering, especially understanding these bioenergetic limitations. But if, if we're talking about optimizing the performance of natural athletes, there's a whole host of things I'd still be willing to take that I still do take. But it's right. understanding that I'm optimizing not for, again, 
tissue deposition or, or conservation or, or catabolism, but optimizing for a performance effect that will then have a downstream or tertiary benefit associated with that bioenergetic limitation. And that's great. And we can talk about thousands of compounds that do that. It's just that what, we're, what I'm increasingly frustrated with is our space doesn't, many people in our space don't approach it in terms of that very narrow, very sort of narrow demarcation between a fundamental change and optimization. If you're gonna, if we're gonna talk about optimization, yes, I still believe in a lot of things. I don't know that we've reached that upper limit. Mm -hmm. For the broader context, I think we probably have reached that upper limit, yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that bugs me is, like there's so many ingredient houses now and every one of them is releasing. So we know grapeseed extract works. But then we had vaso six, then we had selflo six, then we had pomegranate extract, then we had like vit vitronox, and we've had it's like eighteen variations on the same thing. It's like we know polyphenols; they enhance blood flow, increase vasodilation. Vaso, <laughs> like, do I need? Yeah. Do I need a, like a nineteenth goddamn citrus peel extract that's going <laughs> to promise blood flow because you stuck somebody's hand in cold yeah. water and then you measure yeah. how quickly it warmed again? I thought. And that's the study from Citrix. They took people, yeah. they gave the extract, put their hand in cold water, and then took it out. And I thought, this is what yeah. you're going to try and sell exactly. the extract pump. What what does that have to do with the vasculature in skeletal muscle tissue? Like zero. It just those kind of things bug me. And then it's heralded as like this game changing, life altering, industry titanic mm -hmm. shifting thing. I'm just, it's a variation on the exact same. You know, thing. it's it's kind of it reminds me. Have you ever heard of uh, Moore's law in computation? Mm -hmm. the, the exponent, yeah. exponential increase in computational power over time, Yep, that no longer holds true. So yeah. it, on any practice, like on a consumer basis, at, at the most advanced levels, it holds true. But um, essentially, like Intel and AMD are getting to the point where uh, their, uh, die, their die size is what's changing, but it's not changing at the rate that it once was. So computational power isn't doubling every couple of years anymore. Yeah. Uh, storage is doubling. There's still the miniaturization of storage and especially things like uh, non-volatile memory. So mm -hmm. like NVMe hard drives are replacing, well, SSD, like solid state drives, replaced mechanical hard drives a long time ago. Yep. And then non-volatile memory has replaced that specific form of solid state drives. So now like uh, I have a computer right beside me and I have three terabytes of non-volatile memory installed on, an, on a stick this big. It's like as thin as a stick of gum and it's about the exact same size. Wow. But, sorry, the point I'm making, and this is true with consumer electronics general, is that the rate of acceleration for improvement has stalled, and it's mm -hmm. stalled substantially. So if you look at the rate of improvement from iPhone 1 to maybe iPhone 5, it was massive. We we're talking about fundamental changes, and, and not only fundamental changes on a hardware basis, but also massive improvements on a software basis with respect to, to user experience um, and user interface. But then there was also massive changes just to the economics, uh, the economic viability of mobile technology systems. So then you have the development of app stores, third-party technology partners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That rate of change has slowed to a crawl, where now almost all changes are iterative. It's an increase to the sensor size in the camera, which is great because we're getting better, uh, you know, blurrier photos of your ass at nighttime or something like that if you're in a club. <laughs> but like, is that the same sort of revolutionary change of going from having no camera to having a three megapixel camera? No, because it's not a constitutive change, it's an iterative change. Um, you're, you're getting a, a ceaseless increase 
in the app economy. Is that the same sort of constitutive change of going from no third party apps to an app economy? No, it's now an iterative change. I think we're maybe reaching the same point in the historical trajectory of dietary supplements where we're no longer seeing constitutive developments with respect to the way that these compounds affect human physiology or the, or the biological system of the human. Now we're just seeing iterative changes on compounds or um, or therapeutic targets that we know work, and we're just seeing various permutations on those hyper-specific mechanisms of action, which we know to be conducive to a certain change. And then the remaining innovation is just about, I think, specifically digital advertising in the way that we try to monopolize a, a, an attentional economy within our vertical. But yeah, there, I think that there's a very strong analog between, and by the way, that that what I just described is true for almost all industries. There, that oh, yeah. in their right in their original development, there's a rapid rate of change, and then technological limitations slow that rate of change until it's yeah. very permutative over time rather than revolutionary. Mm -hmm. uh, I just think that maybe consumer technology technology is the closest analog because their our development has been historically concordant with theirs, and so there was this massive sort of Cambrian explosion in the in the uh, the physiological targets for dietary supplements and then a massive rate of evolution in terms of flavor technologies, delivery systems. When you look at like the state of supplements in the mid eighties until the aughts, it's just this revolutionary change. And since then it has petered out and it's the exact same of consumer tech, it's the exact same thing, sorry, with consumer technology. I mean, the first iPhone and I, iPod touch were introduced in 2007, right? Or 2008. Yeah. I think cause I, I got, the iPhone, like I was a senior at LSU and like one of my graduation, like a graduation present was like the first iPhone. And so that was 2007, <laughs> 2008. It was right in that time frame. Yeah. It's like seven pounds made of pure steel and like this. this. Oh yeah. Um, that, that was a honking thing, man. Indestructible. It's like a turtle shell. Um, and, and so then in the first four to five years after the introduction of that iPhone, every successive generation had pretty revolutionary changes to um, pixel density on the displays to how responsive the capacitative touch displays were, um, how how resistant to shattering the corning glass was, as I said, the development of the app economy, the in, in, in first introduction, and then increase in the efficacy of camera systems, but it, it substantially slowed. I don't. I, I almost think that that is like an iron law of technological development that is going to constrain almost any industry, yeah. where change stops being vertical and then starts being lateral, right? Like it's mm -hmm. vertical to a certain point and then becomes lateral. I Peter. think we are probably at that stage. And for us, especially, as I said, on a compliance regulatory and therefore definitional basis, there is there is a hard upper limit on what constitutes a dietary supplement in the first place. So we're, we are working not only against the decaying rate of change in technological progress, we're also in this sort of logomaniacal exercise about what constitutes a dietary supplement in the first place. So we have two different caps to work against, a soft cap of the rate of technological innovation, and then a hard cap on what, even if we could somehow break through that, well, then now we're breaking through a, a hard compliance and regulatory limit. Correct. Fun thing I find funny about technology, I guess specifically phones, like we started with like the, the phone that was bolted to the wall and you had to ring that up. Then you had like the, the car phone. Then you had the mm -hmm. regular little handheld cell phone, the flip phone, and we started getting smaller. With phone. Now it seems like the phones are getting bigger and bigger to where like yeah, the new to, iPhones yeah. are like as big as like a tablet almost. And I, I understand I'm exaggerating <laughs> for the listeners out there saying, no, yeah. no, they're still small. I understand that. But still, look at my iPhone 7, which is, I still have the iPhone 7S. 
You look at that thing. Yeah. That's like a normal size, like first generation iPhone. The iPhone 12 oh, yeah. is like this I big. I'm like, I don't want something that big if I'm trying to talk. If you remember the iPhone 6 and 7, which first expanded the iPhone's form factor, were considered massive. Right. People were like, how am I supposed to use this thing? Because one of Steve Jobs' original, uh, original, how should I say, uh, uh, original design mandates was that you should be able to reach everywhere on the phone with a thumb. Right. But that's a precise consequence of the rate of technological innovation slowing. So we have this vertically expansive rate of technological innovation in the consumer electronics space where you're getting, no oh, weird, my automated lights have talked about problems with consumer technology. So you're getting like this expansive rate of change with respect to how those specific, how those specific technologies function. So it's fairly vertical. And then at a certain point, in order to add more features, this form factor incentive where devices needed to be increasingly miniaturized, therefore increasingly thin, increasingly light, butts hard up against the rate of technological innovation such that if you want to include more features in a phone, you have to change the design paradigm. So now there, I think that there is less of a problem. Uh, people, sorry, have less of a problem in terms of increasing the thickness and weight of these devices because they can't fit any more features in there without doing so. Because yeah. for something like optical technology, there is a maximal limit with respect to miniaturization. Like if you want aperture blades to open and close in order to produce that blurry effect, which is called like a bokeh, like how this shit back here is blurry, it's called bokeh. Yeah. Um, bokeh is affected by what's called the f-stop in uh, a camera. And f-stop refers to the rate of opening and closing of aperture blades. Mm -hmm. um, you can't change, like there's a maximal, there's a maximal limitation on the miniaturization of that technology because it's mechanical, it's the last open and close. Now, right. they've tried to, they've tried to circumvent that by introducing digital bokeh. It looks awful, it looks fucking terrible. It, like, it's just absolutely awful. This is digital bokeh and that's why it looks like garbage. Um, so I think these consumer technology companies are, are faced with that, limitation on on technological innovation so as a consequence they need to change what is considered innovation on a marketing and branding basis i think we're probably going to run up against that same constraint where we're probably in the next few years we will need to see some sort of alteration in the way that companies approach their marketing and advertising in order to continue selling continue selling supplements that are i don't want to continue to use this hackneyed phrase, but continuing to pull the same sort of physiological levers. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, it's, it's, it, you've, we've seen it over the past couple of years, kind of with just the pre-workouts in general, 300 caffeine, six to eight grams of citrulline, 3.2 beta alanine, 2.5 betaine. And then it's kind of like an yeah, amalgamation standard, of polyphenols yeah. and one or two other yeah. things. And it's, it's, I mean, we know yeah, it's what works. standardized. It's right. like a yeah, standardized that, form factor of what there's a exact. Yeah. We, we've reached a point of consensus with what uh, that's a, that's a very great example. We've reached a point of consensus as what constitutes a pre-workout. Yeah. And I, I often think like, why? Like I love when I formulate, I love putting weird shit like pregnenolone in um, like a pre-workout. Something always jumps into my head when I think about that, that in the most, the last version of uh, it was Coors pre-workout or Coors Fury. Was, yeah. We were yeah. the first, I'm almost positive we were the first people to put pregnenolone in a pre-workout product. And I love putting weird, just weird things that, but then there is a palatability limitation as well. Like I would put a ton of weird stuff in pre-workouts yeah. and it wouldn't make it taste disgusting. So then there's also, because we've decided a pre-workout product should be a powdered, fairly good tasting 
product that has some increase to the rate of performance for skeletal muscle tissue and then some vasodilative effect that that is a pre-workout right yeah because of that expectation then there are form factor limitations there are economic limitations because that we have insufficient segmentation in our space so whereas nobody who has toyota expectations has mercedes price tolerance we have this like absolutely suffocating concatenation between consumer segmentation and price tolerance in our space. So it's almost like we are forced to function like cartels and like collusively determine the upper limitation on the, the price of a pre-workout product, which then has recursive effects on its form factor. Then again, there's this palatability concern because we've decided that taste or the market, I should say, has decided that taste is a foundational factor in the sell-through rate of pre-workout products. Then that's going to affect what sorts of bioactive compounds you put in a pre-workout product. Because I, like I said, I would put all sorts of weird shit inside a pre-workout product and no one would take it. I think you asked me that last time. Like my, and people have asked me this before, my pre-workout would cost $95 and taste like horse shit, but it would oh, yeah. be just obscenely effective and no one would buy it. There isn't a single person that would buy it. I would buy it and three other people would buy it. Right. And that also is, I, I think, in me inducing some fatigue in terms of sports nutrition formulation because there are these artificial constraints it's just not as exciting to me anymore precisely because i'm wondering well i just don't i don't want to create the same pre-workout that has been created 150 other times where the primary you know unique selling proposition or differentiating factor between them is just the label now don't i love branding branding is my other passion I, Mm -hmm. i think probably that is the thing at which i'm most skilled is just creating a brand whatever that means um so I don't want to denigrate the work that everyone is doing, and I don't want to sound uh, excessively pessimistic, but I think if we're all being realistic with one another, there is a, a pretty narrow window in which a, a pre-workout operates. Now, at the same time, it is a fundamental economic incentive. You essentially cannot be a dietary supplement company without having a pre-workout entrant. And so then there's this strange, almost like, diametrical opposition between an economic incentive where you need to participate if you're going to participate in this vertical you need to you need to create this sort of skew and people's good faith desire to create the best product they can most people that i've interacted with in the space really do want to create very good products for their consumers but there's a maximal efficacy limitation because of these um artificial hard boundaries on things like palatability mixability and things like that Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely, extremely well put. Um, are you okay to go for a couple more minutes? Kent, I've kept you yep. for about an hour and a half. Yeah. Yep, okay. Good. Um, two things I'd, I'd like to do first off, I would say as, as kind of a marketing branding, uh, veteran expert, I'll, I'll throw that term around. If, even if you don't want to say it, I will, because you've worked with a number of companies for a rather long tenure in the industry. Um, do you think you can still be successful starting a brand these days? Um, and do, would you look at it as a worthwhile venture for somebody that is passionate and just trying to get something like they have a passion for sports nutrition for mm-hmm. supplements and they just, they love, they want to embody the lifestyle and they want to start their own brand. Do you think it's worthwhile, mm-hmm. uh, enjoyable, profitable, even as super saturated as the marketplace is? Yeah, those I would, I'd have to answer each one of those differently. Worthwhile. I mean, I know what you mean by that, but that's, I mean, that's a pretty subjective determination. It depends on how you want to spend your time. Uh, So I think depending on how you want to spend your time, what your passions are, 
there's a number of reasons to do it. So yeah, I think it could be subjectively worthwhile. Profitability is in the current supply chain fiasco. Profitability is a major concern. When creatine prices have been increased by 500%, and right, there appears to be no abating with respect to how creatine is increasing because you know 99% of the global supply of creatine is produced in three factories in China, one of which is, uh, to my knowledge, is under a lockdown. The other two of which are having trouble um, obtaining the primary chemicals involved in, in creatine creation, like for example, formaldehyde. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, so profitability is a concern. Where I think that a lot of space exists for innovation in, in the dietary supplement industry is, is that problem I noted earlier about consumer segmentation. Mm -hmm. If you look at the brands in our space, they operate within a shockingly narrow range of authorial voice, uh, a shockingly narrow range of color palettes, a shockingly narrow range of iconography, because everyone is targeting a shockingly narrow range of 18 to 24 year old consumers with an explicit preference towards bodybuilding. So there's this artificial compression on a branding narrative and therefore iconographic and color palette and, and therefore social media strategic basis, where I think if we just did more work in segmenting our consumers and we recognize that 18 to 24 year olds have a broad range of interests that are interpolated with diet and supplementation and bodybuilding, mm -hmm. but our excessively narrow construal of what constitutes our primary demographic is excluding many people who would otherwise participate in the industry. That's where I think people need to get more involved. Like um, you mentioned Joey earlier. So Joey and Mike, I think have done a great job with Glaxon because it's just unabashedly fucking weird. There, people in our space massively underestimate who would purchase our products but for the fact that we're not targeting them. Why is there an assumption that only people with a professed interest in bodybuilding and fitness would take these sorts of supplements? Have you ever been to a fucking gym? Does everyone there look like Chris Bumstead? Nobody there looks like Chris Bumstead. Gyms are filled with completely average motherfuckers, which is a great thing for us yeah. because completely average motherfuckers have a very wide and diverse range of interests that we could be interpolating, but we are not. So if, if you are creating a brand in a contemporary context, I think you have to start with doing the thing that many people who are creating brands don't, though the successful ones have, which is, who are we? And there is a very tight relationship between that question and who are we targeting? Mm -hmm. And the answer, I'm so sick of 18 to 24 year old males. No shit. No shit. Like, I got it, man. You know, they have a lot of discretionary income. It's our primary. I get it. 18 to 24 year old males is just a, almost a cliche demographic at this point. 18 to 24 year old males where? Who have what sort of social media followings, who have what sort of preferences, who are interpolated with what sort of other segments and verticals, who express their desires on what sort of platforms, who you can connect with, which, which, with which sort of advertising and digital marketing technologies. There, I think there's just a broader range of marketing innovation that we could pursue mm -hmm. that is not, <laughs> is not necessitated on black, gold, and red, like the primary colored palettes. Like, you know, RGB is the prime primary colors in our space. It's like black, gold, and red, where it, it like I said, it, it just reflects this, I think, vast, like far too narrow construal of what the dietary supplement consumer is. 
And I, th- I, almost, I almost think I don't I want to I don't want to be rude to my colleague. I almost think it's condescending to the customer. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also why you're seeing a high rate of fatigue for companies and why you're seeing companies who are breaking out of that mold and are better at segmenting and are operating on a consumer segmenting and targeting basis that most people think would be ineffective yeah. are, are having a disproportionate amount of set success because they are engaging in the, in the sort of hyper-specific targeting in which I think you need to engage in order to be successful if you were starting a brand today. And then there are digital marketing technologies that facilitate those activities in ways where I think there's no excuse to continue targeting just the same excessively broad 18 to 24 year old demographic. Like you can take a four week course in Shopify and installing integrations, learn how to code liquid and you should be able to target whoever you want to target with surgical precision. Yeah. yeah and then, then, uh... then there's that, there's that relationship too, by the way, which is that I, I just, I no longer think you can, you can construct branding as a completely separate and distinct exercise mm-hmm. from digital technology, because brand like mm-hmm. brands now exist in a digital space that is that is determined in total by digital technology. So if, if you're not increasing your fluency with digital technologies, even if you are answering the question of who you are and who your consumer is with a sufficient degree of specificity, you're not going to be able to target them. So I think those two things have been combined in a way that was not true with legacy media. Mm-hmm. Do you think, hmm, I'm trying to figure out how like, so when, when apps were, were going to kind of merge the, the tech side with the, with the branding that there was a time when, you know, brand brick and mortar. And then there was a kind of a, we only had strictly D to C brands. And then the brands that were brick and mortar strong started to kind of merge the prices. So they weren't $80 on their price and then yeah. $30 yeah, yeah, in the yeah. store. We started off meeting. Then we saw certain brands start coming out with their own apps. Like, Hey, sign up for this. You'll get exclusive discounts to this yeah. and you'll yeah. do that. And now every brand under the sun has their own app. And we've seen the same thing with streaming services to where Netflix was kind of the first one, but then they had like <laughs> CBS plus and now there's yeah, HBO yeah. and Amazon. There's, 15,000 that and I think I don't know if there is that brand loyalty anymore to where nobody wants to go and pay for 15 streaming services nobody's going to want to have 15 different brand apps on their phone so Mm -hmm. is it to the point where it's going to be nobody's going to have an app because nobody's going to have that like I I don't use the same pre-workout but I'm in a very different space than the average consumer who may have just found their tub of C4 or or on it or whatever and they go get that every month religiously where I you know rotate between four or five pre-workouts if it not over a week's period, over a two week period, at least. Um, mm-hmm. So how, where does that, where does everything kind of even out at the end? Like there's going to be some attrition at some point, a bunch of these streaming mm-hmm. services are going to die or they're going to all get snowballed into one thing, kind of like Disney and Hulu came together yep. and all of that. So is that's what, is that what's going to happen? Do you think as far as like the digital side of stuff in the supplement so. industry? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because I think, I think what you're identifying is that there is, I, I hate to ever say that there are laws to history because yeah, I'm, I'm reading a, a book by uh, David Graeber, and I think David Wood are the authors. It's called The History of Everything. Mm-hmm. And it fundamentally changes you, if you take it seriously, which I think you do, and if you check their secondary sources, which I've done, and I think you should, it yeah. fundamentally changes what you look at as the historical trajectory of the West, where most of what we would think of as um, enlightenment ideals, like the French mm-hmm. Revolution's phrase of um, uh, fraternité, egalité, uh, liberté, mm-hmm. um, 
those those seem to actually be transmitted by indigenous tribes based on the contact between Jesuits, like the first Jesuits came over for the purpose of proselytization and indigenous tribes who embodied those principles on a non-hierarchical basis. And that, that is a fundamental reorientation. And this isn't just hearsay, by the way, like they provide historical sources demonstrating that these personal biographies are like uh, the first efforts into ethnographies, detailing contact between explorers, like Western explorers from France and England and these indigenous tribes. These were bestsellers. Like if you were anything from like, to the extent that there existed like uh, in aristocratic Europe, a middle class, anywhere from middle class to the landed aristocracy. So in other, in other words, constituting the total population of literate individuals, you had this book. These were the best selling books year over year over year. And then there is a direct relationship between the proliferation of this sort of literature and the emergence in France and the emergence in England in the 17th century at the start of the enlightenment, the sort of the twin pillars actually of Western society, the, uh, uh, enlightenment and the industrial revolution the emergence of concepts of social equality which simply did not exist under arist aristocratic systems the concept that there would be anything like social equality the concept that there would be anything like freedom under an aristocratic system was a non-starter like right. the the king or the monarch conferred you your rights you see this um, in the existence of absolute monarchies in Saudi Arabia, for example, their theory of the state, like Mohammed uh, bin Salam, uh, Mohammed bin Salam, what is, what is MSB's last name? Salam, right? Mohammed bin Salam? I think so. Anyway, yeah. um, their theory of the state is that the absolute monarch confers you rights. So women were yeah. uh, conferred the right to drive in Saudi Arabia a few years ago, not because women are humans who deserve the right to drive, but because the absolute monarch, MSB, uh, MBS, sorry, decided to confer them those rights. So anyways, there's this uh, relationship between the historical confrontation between indigenous tribes in what we would recognize as North America now, and the emergence of these concepts that we now take to be fundamentally Western Anglophonic values. They were probably values conferred by in indigenous people before. Um, so there is this sort of like... Uh, pushing against in anthropology anything like laws like iron laws of history that was that was a massive disquisition and divergence by the way <laughs> the point i was trying to make was that i don't like to say that there are laws of history but there are repeatable patterns so there there are like humans are very patternizing and predictable creatures when you group yeah. them together in sufficiently large amounts so there seems to be this um common trajectory for uh, industries with respect to how they mature. So you have mm -hmm. this in this nascent phase where it is like a Cambrian explosion. And for those that don't know, uh, the, the Cambrian period is a period in um, animal evolution and historical geology or geology, I should say, that that where we go from very, very simple unicellular organisms to complex multicellular organisms. But this is a time where what we would call the genetic body plan and the genetic body plan, at least on a like a phylum basis or a chordata mm -hmm. basis, is pretty well defined. Um, but it wasn't then. So you get all these fucking bizarre creatures where the body plan, the genetic body plan, hadn't been established at that point. So you get this Cambrian explosion in an industry where the very fundamental aspects of the industry, like form factor, relationships to consumers, delivery technologies or modalities, those things are being sussed out. Mm -hmm. um, after the Cambrian explosion... 
like just like there was an evolutionary economy where organisms needed to exist within a bioenergetic niche and that bioenergetic niche like I, this is what i was referencing earlier the changes in energy systems come before the evolution it's not the other way around it's that you like humans for example we got big brains and big babies changes to our caloric provision needed to occur in order to facilitate the increasing rate of uh, body to brain ratio in human beings which is what constitutes our humanity same thing happens in all uh, ecological niches energy provision needs to change first and then it changes biological systems so this occurs this is kind of the same way when you think about it in a socioeconomic context is that consumer dollars need to be infused first and then you see um, form factor changes so after this cambrian explosion in industry where everyone's trying to decide on the form factor delivery technologies you get uh, a rather settled phase and I think this is like the golden era of any industry where you have a very nice balanced relationship between the rate of technological change and the rate of consumer infusion with dollars where it's not totally set settled. So there's still a nice rate of change and improvement, mm -hmm. but consumer fatigue is sufficiently low where people are continuing to buy. And then you get the mature phase of the trajectory where there's, uh, as you said, a console, um, not a consolation, a, uh, consolidation i should say a consolidation of actors in the space so after everyone decides on okay this is the form factor this is the delivery mechanism this is how you brand in the space which is kind of boring then you get a consolidation of the actors in the space which i think is half skill half propitious it's you know fairly capricious and adventitious with respect to which actors emerge i think especially in especially in in countries or markets that have a very high degree of free market ideation like the united states there's an expectation that whoever emerged was the most skillful but whenever you examine the historical rector there's like a, <laughs> a lot yeah there's a bunch of other confounding factors and stuff <laughs> exactly. it's not purely just you there had the many, best stuff exactly there's like many confounding factors a high degree of stochasticity and then you get a consolidation of the actors and then from there it's um, almost monopolistic over time until uh, another sort of dialectical period of history emerges where you get an upstart who fundamentally challenges the foundation. We're nowhere near that in our space. That also is the same analog to consumer technology. That's why I think we're in the same space is that like, if you look at consumer technology, even preceding the iPhone, it was like flip phones and then like double flip phones. And then weird things were like the, you know, like the keyboard flipped out of the back and then turned around and then it turned into like a toaster or something like that. And right. The market naturally decided it didn't want those form factors. And so now, it is obscene how narrow is the range for form factors for mobile devices. It is anywhere from a five to seven inch slab of anodized aluminum and corning glass. To, to the point where in, in half decade long legal challenges between Samsung and Apple in, I, I think that's California's Southern, it is in California's Southern District, which is like, by the way, one of the most litigious districts in the entire country. Judges essentially decided that Apple could not sue uh, Samsung for trademark infringement, even though Apple had been validly granted trademarks on this sort of form factor, because the juries and judges in a, um, in a combined fashion decided that you can't trademark something that is this basic. If there's like a biometric constraint on the way, uh, the way that form factors are constituted. Yeah. This corresponds to the same sort of limitation that we are encountering with pre-workouts. There seems to be a palatability constraint that that you know what i mean like yeah that, absolutely that compress exactly compresses the sorts of things that you can put into pre-workouts therefore compresses their maximal efficacy and i think the same change is being seen in attention attentional 
capture technologies and remarketing and retargeting technologies where five to six years ago, if you were active on Facebook ads and you had a fairly comprehensive and robust remarketing and retargeting schema through whether that was through Shopify when it was emerging at that time or just through Facebook uh, remarketing, you were at, like at the vanguard, right? Mm -hmm. Now that's almost like a, a basic cost of entry. You need to be doing those things. There, yeah. Shockingly, there are a few hyper successful companies in our space who don't do that sort of stuff. But it is it has that technology has become increasingly democratized. So I think we are at that consolidation phase where you're right. The people who are not successful at all of the me too sorts of ways of engaging with consumers will fall off and there will emerge a few market leaders um, and will follow that sort of trend, which we're starting to see, by the way, with what used to be considered innovative, which were brand collaborations. And now is it innovative any longer if every single brand is pursuing brand collaborations? Yeah. It's just leaders start to emerge who are much better at it than others. And that, that is that sort of um, implac what I love about human innovation, that sort of implacable human element of artistry, where some people are just fundamentally better at it than others. And those that that is the part of it that's not propitious. It's not adventitious. It's not luck. It's just some people on a meritorious basis are fundamentally better at capturing their audience's attention and sense of nostalgia or uh, whatever sort of affective lever they're going to pull. And yeah. though in that consolidation phase, those people will, will emerge as the winners, but they might end up buying other companies or other companies will just fall out because they'll be seen as insufficiently innovative or as replicas. So, yeah. yeah and you, saw, that, you yeah. saw this in the mid-aughts in terms of the, like, I think me and I may have talked about this before. The form, what constituted a pre-workout has gone through generational changes. So yep. when I first started doing this, it was NO Explode, which was like the size of a, it was like a fucking five pound. <laughs> it was huge. I mean, <laughs> Every scoop was like 60 grams of stuff. And then yeah. USP Lab, like proudly USP Labs were the people who innovated that ultra concentrated form factor. So you went from this massive tub of NO Explode to a thing of Jack that was this big. That was a generational change with respect to form factor. Now we're almost coming full circle and going back to much larger scoops, right? Um, yeah. But you see that sort of same, I hate to call it a law, but it's almost like this socioeconomic pattern with respect to growth trajectories and in industries where you get this Cambrian explosion. Everyone, everyone doesn't know what form factor should look like. The market decides what the form factor should look like. So then you have uh, an innovative phase where people are not just iteratively, not iterating on that form factor, but they're, engaging in massive technological innovation within that form factor. And then whether it's through consumer fatigue or a maximum limit on technological innovation, you get a consolidation phase and then a few market leaders emerge and then take off. I think you're right that with respect to digital technologies, we're probably reaching that consolidation phase because uh, digital marketing technologies have become so democratized. Now at the same time, uh, it still is about skill. I, I like, uh, I don't give a fuck who you hire. I will put my skill with respect to Shopify integrations up against anybody. That is something I know how to do well. So that's why I think that there there's still opportunities for highly skilled people to get in and, and do that sort of thing. Absolutely. Uh, on this topic of Shopify and, and just technology in general, I run the supplement engineer site through Shopify. Mm -hmm. That's just the first platform I started. And I thought about shifting to WordPress a couple months back and I started to go down that wormhole and I said, I'm just going to stick with Shopify. Maybe uh, it's a little bit more uh, expensive, but... Yeah. Do you have any specific recommendations as far as apps for better page builders or like a blogging section? Because if you look at like the blogging functionality of Shopify, it's it's mm -hmm. very basic. Like you can't do like images on the mm -hmm. side with a wall of text next to it unless you buy one of these other page builders. And I just 
it's probably the cheap ass in me just thinking, why do I want to pay $10 a month for this thing? So just so I can put a picture next to some other text yeah. instead of just having, you know, picture, text, picture, text, or yes, thing yeah, like yeah. that or something. So I don't know if you so have for, any recommendations or exp, uh, experience. For somebody like you, it, it might be a matter of just buying a, a better template, like a, a, a better Shopify template that has a specific blog functionality coded into the liquid so that you're just mm -hmm. replicating that page instead of like just using Shopify or Shopify Plus's basic page building functionality. The, the direction I would go is rather than paying for a page building app, I would just pay for a Shopify template or get someone to develop a custom template for you. That being said, um, blog efficacy, which I, I think if you were in, instituting KPIs, key performance indicators on any sort of objective basis, is going to be total read time and total impressions. Yeah. I think there are ways to modulate those two KPIs where the way that it looks is almost irrelevant. I, I don't know that, you know what I mean? So I, you yeah. might make an economic decision or like a business case where it's irrevelant to you the way that it looks if your, K, if your KPIs are still good, mm -hmm. then you go, well, why would you pay? Is it going to have an optimizing effect? I don't, I don't know. For e-commerce, like conversion rates are largely determined by your user interface. So yeah. there's always a business case to improving your user interface and being as effective as you can in that regard. And there are very, very, very predictable mechanisms that you can institute that create what's called a frictionless user experience um, yeah. through user interface elements that are more humanely designed and that are CRO, they are conversion rate optimized. Um, but for something like a blog content, I, I don't know that you have, a, I, I, yeah, I just don't know that there's a pressing economic incentive to make it look pretty. If your KPIs are, are performing the way that you would expect them to, then I wouldn't pay the extra money. Yeah, and I, I, that's what I was also thinking. Like, because part of it is just the way my brain is wired. Just from when I first got into the space, you know, working with with Mike at PricePilot was, hey, we have so many paragraphs, and then we have an image on the right. Then we go down, we we have a maybe a, mm -hmm. a blank wall text, and then some text, and then an image on the left. To where that way, it kind of keeps the yeah. user's eyes going, and maybe that keeps them more engaged. But the the more I've started to kind of look at it, like I think a lot of those kind of things are just you look at with some of like you go to like mass research or stronger by science. There's, it's not all these fancy things on the sides. It's just no text picture text pic and like it's more of like almost like an article where you just read it oh, yeah, right down sure. and I just and i think i'm just getting you know, too like, in my head about that stuff and why it just just write the content nobody else cares about any of the other shit do you so. read any substack blogs like blogs on substack yeah yeah and i've started to try and just get like build out a newsletter that way and that's basically all the way substack exactly. is exactly it's just yeah. <laughs> exactly it's not, it's not aesthetically optimized whatsoever it's just a wall of text yeah. i think for things like blogs that, like blogs and podcasts are one of the last remaining vestiges where I think quality of content is still the determinative factor. You can pull every remarketing, retargeting mechanism you want, but I still think that they are fundamentally meritorious. Now, the, the problem is that merit is a heavily individuated and segmented phenomenon where I, I think that it's about connection with an audience rather than some sort of objectival metric that you could say this content is better than others. On a content basis, I, I think you measure the efficacy or quality of content based precisely on the degree to which it connects with the specific audience with which you intend to connect. That, that to me, is how you measure quality content. Yeah. But within, e e even within that more reductive configuration or consideration of quality, I love blogs and I love podcasts because I think it's, the, as I said, the last vestiges where it's not algorithmically determined, um, regardless yeah. of how much um, the attentional algorithms try to sort of authoritatively dictate what's read and what's not read. 
these are the the last vestiges of like a meritorious content. And I, it's great because it's not determined on how pretty your blog is. It's about whether or not you are developing content that your audience finds to be interesting. Now you have to, again, you have to do that definitional exercise to ask who am I, which is heavily related to whom I attempting to reach. But I, I think it's amazing that there's still a space in which like blogs, especially Substack newsletters, podcasts, where whether you're successful depends on whether you're good. And I love that. I think there's something very hopeful about that space sort of existing. Agreed. Which, by the way, that, yeah. that, that corresponds to, to, I think, what determines uh, brand success in the contemporary context, as, as I um, <laughs> gave the most obnoxiously ruminative uh, and like dissertative answer ever to your question. But I think that is what determines success. If I was just speaking the King's English, it would be if you want to be successful as a brand, find an audience and connect with it. And that's, that's how you're going to be successful. Yeah. Be authentic to yourself. And I think that'll attract the people that, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like attracts like to a certain extent. By the way, know, even, I'm... even this, that is just like my natural, as you know, this is my natural way of speaking, but yeah. I also refuse. I've, uh, this is going to offend probably most of the people who are watching this because I, I think I talked about this on Ben from price Balls podcast where, uh, most CEOs might be psychopaths. So there's like a very, <laughs> right. There's a very like well-defined or articulated psychological profile for most of the people who engage in our space for all the reasons that we talked about earlier, because there are not, there are not better articulated labor input mechanisms on an institutional educational basis. Our space is naturally going to be populated by individuals with an entrepreneurial mindset on a big five personality trait index. Entrepreneurs uh, tend to express for, a fairly well-established range of openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, low levels of neuroticism, right? They're, it's, they're on a dispositional and, and, and psychographic basis. This is why I, I think you see a fairly narrow range of ideologies being expressed in our industry, which probably, by the way, is the psychological or psychosocial explanation for why there's a fairly, fairly limited range of brands um, uh, in our space. Anyway, so the reason why I say what I'm about to say is going to offend these people is I fucking hate Gary Vee. Like I would, I would rather slam my penis in a drawer for all eternity, like Sisyphus, like be condemned by the Greek gods to push a boulder up a hill and then have the boulder run over my penis, than listen to Gary Vee's content. It just it makes me want to jab my fucking eyeballs out with a lead pencil. I just like I would, I would rather kill myself with a rusty spoon. For just so many reasons, I just it, like al- almost everything he says is demonstrably false. Like almost everything he says is demonstrably false, and he is the per- he he is an exemplar of this. What I think is a very psychologically destructive tendency to deify individuals because of their business success. So, um, like when I was business partners with Doug, I used to talk about this a lot. If X business is successful people will say we're geniuses for coming up with this brand concept. And if it's unsuccessful, they'll say we're morons. But there's so much stochasticity or randomness in terms of brand or business success that that has always seemed to me a very bizarre and like retroactive or recursive way to determine intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when people lionize people like Gary Vee, I just think, oh my God, like, for the average individual, you are much better taking your data from research scientists who have looked at businesses in the aggregate 
and looked at predictable features of what constitutes success and then instituting these business practices rather than, man, you're fucking so young, man. Like, you're only 37. You're only like, I would love to have one late, man. Like, I, oh my God, it makes me want to just smash my face up against a fucking window repeatedly. Um, <laughs> now, I'm so flushed. I don't remember where I was going with this because I hate Gary Vee that much. But, 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 um, I, I, oh, I think I was making a point about content. But yeah, like, Mm -hmm. I, I still think there's that space for con for like meritorious content, but um, yeah, I'm so I'm so annoyed by Gary Vee's very existence that I forgot what I was talking about, and I never forget what I was talking about. I just hate the dude that I his fucking I I just can't stand how people like if you're getting in a discussion with someone, they'll pull out Gary Vee as evidence, and I just think, oh my dear God, what what has happened to us that this is who we're looking at as like a thought leader, and this is pissing off at least 70% of the people that are listening to this. They just think I'm a moron and now don't care about anything that I've said because they love Gary Vee. I, no, I, I echo those sentiments pretty much wholeheartedly. You know I don't think I've ever watched an entire Gary Vee thing just because it's it comes across so, I don't know, disingenuous, fake. I, I don't know yes. what it is, but there's just something like kind of car salesman-y about it. I'm like, you have to be a content creator. You've got to be like, just because you put a video on the internet doesn't mean you're a content creator. Like. You put something out there. Is it worth? Is it valuable? Is it insightful? Oh, is that's it a well-formed right. opinion? Yes. No. For like ninety-five percent of the shit out there, no, it's not. That was that was the catalyst, right? We were talking about what constitutes quality content, and yeah, then I just yeah. went on the tangent about Gary Vee. Yeah, okay. That is, I, I like, I've probably lost my train of thought in the discussion three times before in my life. Even if I go on these disquisitory or expository explanations, I'll always bring it back. But I. I I find Gary Vee so distasteful that he like, yeah, ruined my train of thought. Um, I just, I think that if we were, if we were saying like, how do you define business success or who should you look at with respect to starting a brand? I think one of the reasons that people are unsuccessful is they deify and then therefore reify the principles of people who happened to be successful. I, I put my, I never put my faith in single individuals. Single individuals are almost always wrong. I don't even put my faith in myself. As I said, I talked about finding this, this guy, Herman Ponza's work. And I was initially heavily skeptical about it. I didn't believe it until I found that it was actually a, an emerging consensus in evolutionary anthropology and bioenergetics. But as I said, I'm willing to fundamentally change my paradigm. When you get attached to single individuals, you're almost never willing to do that. And I think that we have this, oh, that's what we we're talking about. The yeah, the psychological constitution of our space and blah, yeah. Um, and people in our space, I think, overwhelmingly tend to do that. Oh, you heard what Tony Robbins said or Simon Sinek or Gary Vee. And I just think, what? Like, there, there, <laughs> there are volumes produced on systems theory and organizational ontology and management theory from people who have been studying the aggregate success or failure of businesses over decades as an average individual, you are far better looking at that than you are looking at the the practices or behaviors of someone who's exceptional. Oh, right. That's what we're talking about because our industry is disproportionately constituted by people. Yeah. So then in our space, um, you, you've probably seen this, but there is this preponderance of exceptional thinking where everyone wants to believe that they're an exceptional individual. So they should therefore follow what exceptional individuals do, which at the same time predisposes people against recognizing that. Uh, to an overwhelming degree, your success in life is determined, uh, as I said, adventitiously or, or, or propitiously, just as an accident. Um, 
this con I think concords with the refusal to accept the role of genetics in our space, like uh, influence, like uh, Instagram influencers who can walk around at five percent body fat all year long and are convinced it's because of their fast intermittent fasting diet and not because their genetics like, allow allow them to do that. And this corresponds with uh, this, I, I think, small C conservative. I'm not making a political point. I'm making a disp dispositional point. The small C conservative um, absolute interminable refusal to recognize recognize the socioeconomic context, context of success or failure. And then this predisposes people to eventually fail in business because they're just examining the wrong factors. They're not they're not properly examining the factors that were determinative and then also extraneous to their success. They never properly examined how much of their success or failure, by the way, was just de determined almost randomly or by factors beyond their control. So yeah, I think that is also a, a strong factor in, in determining success. I literally, I yeah, I, I think saying that I wanted to be Sisyphus with a boulder rolling over my penis is what caused me to lose my train of thought because uh, that, <laughs> It's it's so accurate. How much I would rather do that than listen to like, uh, is that because has that has that ever happened to you when you're like arguing with someone and they send you a piece of Gary Vee content or you can just tell that their whole ideology is determined by, and I just think this is oh man this is the most psychologically destructive tendency. Or people will tell me, well, I do this because Steve Jobs did this. I don't fucking care what Steve Jobs did. You know, like Steve Jobs was so transcendently intelligent that his behavior doesn't apply to me. Elon Musk's behavior doesn't apply to me. I don't. I don't give a fuck that Steve Jobs wore one turtle, black turtleneck every day. Are you Steve Jobs? His IQ is probably 180. You're hovering at best around 106. Like there was no lifeguards in your family's gene pool. So why do you, why do you care what Steve Jobs did? It's like those his behavioral eccentricities, or the behavioral eccentricities of like a Howard Hughes or Elon Musk are not causative for their success. They are side effects of a mind consumed by its own brilliance. You shouldn't, you should not deify these people, nor should you attempt to exemplify their characteristics. Interpersonally, they're often terrible fucking people. They're awful managers. And it's, but for the fact that they are transcendently brilliant, like once in a generation innovative thinkers that people are willing to put up with their horrendous micromanagement, their capricious, arbitrary, and tyrannical behavior. But uh, this all actually ties into the same thing, like with respect to the attentional economy and social media, is that we don't want to have nuanced discussions about the factors involved in success. We just want to look at exceptional individuals, like it's called the great man theory of history, and go, oh, this person does this. So because Gary Vee was successful, I am going to listen to everything he says and embody his characteristics. But my mind always goes, is there any evidentiary base for anything that he's just said? Like, is anything that he's just said, can it be grasped and verified in any meaningful way? No? Okay, well, then I don't give a fuck. Why, why would I care? Like, why would I care? Am I Gary Vee? Did, did I inherit a $5 million wine business from my father? No. Am I starting a business from scratch with $20,000 in my pocket? Yes. Okay. So then let me read some books that, that, that aggregate research or collate, I should say, collate research on the aggregate experience of people who are similarly positioned with me on a socio-demographic and a socio-economic basis, see what the historical patterns for success and failure are, and then see how I can modify those historical patterns to my specific historical situation, not, not go, oh, well, Simon Sinek, Simon Sinek is butchering this pop psychology study 
that has repeatedly been debunked as part of a broader replication crisis in the behavioral sciences. And because Simon Sinek <laughs> did it, I'll do it. That, that whole tendency is like so antithetical to my personality. It makes me want to like light my devices on fire when people share that content with me. And I just think, oh my God, man, if you're, uh, please tell me that you're not letting this guide your behavior. But the crazy thing is that it does. Many, many, extraordinary, like a shocking amount of people, highly successful people, by the way, because it's confirming their own inherent biases about what constitutes success, yeah. consume this content and then allow it to guide their behavior. And I always just think, why don't you test the null hypothesis? Why don't you ask what could have been had you done something different and then let that be your guiding light. So, okay, your company made 40 million. What if you did this differently and it could have made 100 million? Would you not rather have 100 million, rather, right? Like, right. Yeah. But yeah, just you can put that as the headline quote for this podcast that I would rather be Sisyphus allowing a boulder to run over my penis repeatedly for all eternity than <laughs> take Gary V's advice. <laughs> there are so, I would have to make like a bunch of little mini clips for this episode because there are so many great gold nuggets and I've been making timestamps of all this. I'm going to put there, there's going to be like, we're going to have this, the full episode uploaded, obviously, but yeah, I'm going to put little like, little two or three like little minute vignettes on there and just show like these are like I, it's either knowledge bombs or i'm just laughing hysterically in the background <laughs> that'll, that'll, that'll be the headline awesome. is the gary v penis boulder uh the, yeah. the funny thing though is like an overwhelming and i know this i just know i i think i'm a, i am self-aware enough to know that my personality is an acquired taste and i know that yeah. some people will find me pretentious or condescending and they just they can't handle my dissertating or like ponderous answers on everything and that's okay yeah. i have no uh, plans on changing but i know that the gary v thing will annoy just a whole bunch of people and they will ignore everything i said and just focus on the fact that gary v uh's company is worth a hundred million dollars and who the fuck are you you're some random ginger in medicine hat alberta and my my answer will always be yeah that is the point that i'm trying to make is that so are you and like your life situation corresponds far more directly to mine than his and so why wouldn't you listen to, to outsourced knowledge compiled over decades for people whose life situation mirrors your life situation and not, and, and not try to replicate the unique success of an individual and embody their, like, uh, this is the last thing I'll say on this point, because this is like a whole tangent, but you know, Elizabeth Holmes, mm -hmm. the, the disgraced leader of Theranos, yes. uh, she embodies this tendency more than anyone else. Like she... I'm not sure if you've ever listened to her affected tone of voice, but it's like much lower because she thinks that's how leaders should speak. And mm -hmm. she wore the same stupid black turtleneck every day because she did what she thought Steve Jobs would do. Yeah. And ostensibly intelligent analysts and investors, including somebody like General James Mathis, who was on the Theranos board, mm -hmm. um, Trump, uh, Donald Trump's first Secretary of Defense, who was like lauded for his acuity and, and sagacity of his military mind, was on Theranos' board and in, invested there. Or he either invested and was on the board or he strictly invested, don't quote me there. But all of these people who were ostensibly intelligent were duped by her bullshit because they also believed in this ridiculous, ridiculous and fraudulent ideology of great man theory and thought, oh, well, she's she is like, replicating all of these behavioral tics of great leaders and she was heavily charismatic and persuasive yeah. and when you uh watch that documentary you think how did no one ask like about the business fundamentals or how did no one ask just to have this technology demonstrated in front of how, how did nobody bring in a professor from stanford in, or uh, 
Berkeley or Yale, Hart, wherever, and asked, yeah. is this technology feasible before I give you $500,000? And, and they didn't because this is how powerful ideology is. And that same yeah. tendency is what will cause people to hear me say, fuck Gary Vee, and conclude, well, you're some random asshole in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada, and Gary Vee's a uh, multimillionaire many times over. So I'm not going to listen to what you say. I'm going to listen to what he said. It just makes me want to bang my head up against the table. Because it's not, I'm not saying I'm superior to Gary Vee or I'm right. I'm just saying I can't listen to that sort of content because it is just so factually inaccurate that it, even that, like, even <laughs> this whole podcast has just turned into Gary Vee slander. But um, even the parts of Gary Vee's content, which you could argue are more subjectival. Mm -hmm. So how to achieve success even in the context of the preferential selection for for content on algorithmically ordered social networks like Facebook and Instagram, who as we've now known for, for many, many years now are prejudiced against business content. So even that sort of exposition, which it is more subjectival because anyone who tells you they understand how the algorithms function don't, it's like, I'm sorry, are you, like, did you do your PhD research in recursive neural networks? You don't know how the algorithm works. You're just, like, making an inference based on what happened to be successful or not. Even that stuff, that's the point I would make is show me the evidence. Like, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to dismiss anyone's success, but I almost never care when someone was successful in one venture. Yeah. O only because of the overwhelming influence of randomness and stochasticity. When someone shows me that they have been successful multiple times in the same vertical with different businesses, reaching different consumer segments, that's someone to listen to. Or someone who has a very articulable and substantial case for why they were successful that was based on aggregate data, then that's someone that you should listen to. But success, I just don't, I don't think that uh, people in the West, I, I just don't think that they are sufficiently accepting of success is randomness that they so then it, it creates this overwhelming tendency to like i said re recursively determine someone's intelligence or or the extent to which we should listen to what they have to say based on whether or not they were successful and it's very much a binary like i said you did a successful yeah. business okay you're someone worth listening to you didn't you're not and i just don't think i just don't think that's the case yeah no that, that's very very well put um, we've hit the two hour mark, Kenton. I'm going to hit you with some quick stuff so we can kind of pivot this back towards supplements and I'll get you out of here on this. <laughs> um, you're like, you're like, I don't want to be sued by Gary Vee's team. So let's oh, no, get off the Gary Vee boulder penis slander. Bring it, bring it. Let's go. I mean, if, if he wants to go after some little nerd in the supplement space, man, that would be dude. That would be great for our careers. I would love it. That yeah, would it'd be, be great publicity, be you know, millionaire, hundred millionaire sues little supplement nerds for <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Over the Sisyphusian analogy of uh, having a boulder run over my penis relatively. <laughs> Phallic destruction by boulder. That's part of the Gary V lawsuit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but you, that's what you should title the, the podcast. Phallic destruction by boulder for all eternity. <laughs> um, daily supplement regiment. What does that look like? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, well, first I push a boulder up a hill and then I listen to Gary Vee and then as it crushes my penis, I take a lot of supplements that are shown to facilitate wound healing. No, um, CoQ10, uh, Hawthorne Berry, Berberine, Spirulina, and then just like a powdered form. Uh, and that's it right now. Um, how much Hawthorne and how much Spirulina? 
Uh, I think I do 500 milligrams uh, three times daily for Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to check. I just have like a random generic spirulina. I can't remember the dosage in the gram. Yeah, I've got like a, a tub of the Nutri-Cost yes. spirulina here, yeah. the blue, blue lid and everything. I take. So you're doing like a powder? Yeah, 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 just the powder. So I'd put like a teaspoon in there and it ends up being like three, yeah. four grams, depending on how heaping the scoop yeah. is and just throw it in there. Um, pre-workouts, do you use them much? Are you a highly caffeinated individual or not so much? Uh, I Honestly, I go through phases. So... This, uh, what I'm about to say is going to shock you. So hold, hold on to your fucking hat. But I have ADHD. And so like many, <laughs> many people with ADHD, uh, I am an insomniac. I've always had a very troubled and tenuous relationship with sleep. So there, um, there are periods of my life where I have somehow, you know, consumed up to four energy drinks a day and slept fine. So when I was involved with America Energy, I was almost 800 milligrams of caffeine a day and I could fall asleep fine and feel like what I have restorative sleep right now. I drink my, my trustees, what is this called? Ultra Fiesta flavor of monster energy. I'll usually drink one of those a day and, uh, I take Modanafil daily. I'm not sure. Yeah. I would, by the way, I tried to, I tried to sneak a Danafil into a supplement one time, but the manufacturer wouldn't let me, um, I had a very like esoteric argument for why it was a dietary supplement under Deshea, but they didn't accept it. Anyway. Um, so modanophil is often prescribed off-label to adults with uh, ADHD, specifically because I'm very sensitive to I'm very sensitive to the amphetamine backbone mm-hmm. um, therapies for ADHD, like Ritalin and Ritalexidrine. Yeah, they they have catastrophic effects for my sleep. So, yeah, at maximum. Right now, I'll take my Modanafil, which is prescribed by my doctor, and then one Monster Energy drink, or sometimes no Monster Energy at all. But yeah, I don't, I don't do any stimulant-based pre-workouts, only because I, what I try to do is um, practically apply my theoretical principles. So once I, um, once I learned about this bioenergetic problem that the body just adapts. I, cause I, I'm very quantitative in my approach to training. So I was, I was talking to Ben from price Paul about this actually the other day. Like I have a, a weekly and daily periodized structure for both my diet and my training that correspond to one another. So I do like a weekly periodization in terms of my caloric intake, a weekly periodization with respect to my training. And then my training is I use Charles Poliquin's daily undulating periodization approach. Yep. All of that to say that, especially because I've tracked, every macro I've put in my body, I think my, my fitness pal is up to 1400 days or something like that. It's very easy for me to experiment and then see what the changes are. I do regular body fat measurements, like volumetric body fat measurements, weight measurements, all that sort of stuff. So once I found out about um, the bioenergetic thing, I just stopped doing all cardio for a couple months because I wanted to see the change to my body composition zero, by the way, which <laughs> further entrenched that, that belief in me. And then I kind of did the same thing with all, um, what I guess you would call perform like sports nutrition supplementation and just cut them out because I wanted to see if it had any effect whatsoever. And it, I, I hate to say this, but it didn't. Yeah. Which yeah. for, again, for me, like further entrenched the thing about maybe we should move towards m- more, a more practical basis for supplementation in general health, because it didn't like seeing that had no effect on my numbers, seeing it had like a strength number, seeing it had no effect on my endurance, anything like that. I was like, Hmm. It's interesting. Now, that was a couple months ago. 
I have a plan to selectively rein, reintroduce a number of bioactive compounds, and then I want to measure my rate of performance change. So ask me again in a couple months before I just dismiss that whole, because it could have been, I had just taken them for too long and then adapted. Yeah. So it, we, like, we may need to think about, we, we may, as an industry, we, we may need to think about recommendations on truncated timelines or think about supplementation less as a chronic phenomenon and as more as a cyclical phenomenon where mm -hmm. you're taking courses of supplements for four to six weeks in order to, right, in, in order to extract the immediate adaptive benefits before, mm -hmm. right, adaptive thermogenesis, for example, in the case of a thermogenic compound obtains. But yeah, ask me again in a couple months and I'll tell you after I reintroduce them if it had any proliferative effect on, on my numbers. Okay. Um, I'm going to hit you with some ingredients just specific. You can say thumbs up, thumbs down, or we'll wait and see. Okay. Uh, NMN. And I can't, you, you do not want me to be ponderous about it. Just, right? <laughs> we, we, we could, we could ponder within reason. Yeah. I don't want to just go into like a 30 minute diatribe because I'm going to hit, I'm going to just like do a couple. Like, okay. Hot I'll, button, just, hot I'll button just do. Topics. Yeah, you can maybe just ask me about them after. I, I would say, oh man, I, I would say a cautious. I'm sorry. Okay. Turkesterone. <laughs> that for, for people listening, Hard, that, I can't. Thumbs down. I, I have so much. <laughs> I, I wish I had more elbow mobility so I could just get it like totally. Yes, everybody's, dude, oh man, everybody and their grandmas is, is throwing their hat mm -hmm. on this turkesterone crap and it's going to cycle out of phase and then five years yeah. it'll come back and uh, anyway. so same ectosterone did the same thing uh, yeah 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 um dihydroberberine versus berberine thumbs up okay um can i tell you something easy? interesting yeah sure i have i have, uh so dihydro by berberine dihydroberberine has recently become right like a relatively a relatively popular version of berberine is no longer cost prohibitive. I will forward you after this meeting an email from 2006 where I was talking to John and Jacob from USP Labs about switching out the berberine in anabolic pump for dihydroberberine. Sweet. Yeah. I didn't realize uh, the cost of uh, DHB or glucovanage had come, has been more, has shrunk. Oh, before. I, I, it was sorry, exorbitantly expensive. To 2006, like at 2006, the week because we investigated, it was just so like there was no standardized form of dihydroberberine. That's my point. Yeah. Sorry, I'm talking about a, over a 16 year time scale. I just mean mm -hmm. way back in 2006, 2007, I showed them the first research paper done on dihydroberberine and said, Hey, we should replace this. And so we engaged the researchers and they're like, Okay, it's like $5,000 per kilogram. <laughs> Do it this way. It's not going to have like I have to custom produce it for you every time. That's what I mean is over 16 years, it's no longer cost prohibitive relative to like berberine it's still pretty cost prohibitive to use like a glucal vantage or something like that but it's just not not trying to pat myself on the back i just find it very interesting that it's like that is how innovative usp labs was on an ingredient basis back then as we were discussing that but yeah generally i would say yeah uh 3d pump and the new pump ingredients <laughs> i'll plead the fifth okay um nitrates uh, I, I think that there is a very strong equilibration effect associated with nitrates. And so your maximum effective or therapeutic window is probably like four or five weeks. And this is a documented phenomenon with respect to like using nitrates as a therapeutic modality for angina. There's a washout period associated with the nitrate nitrate pathway of, 
um, endothelial nitric oxide synthase production. So uh, I, I would say like a, a, a rate or time limited thumbs up, but there is an absolute washout period where those need to be cyclically used and nobody does that. So. Um, and I don't think, I don't think the five and two protocol mitigates against that. It just doesn't happen. It's like yeah. you four or five weeks and then you need to have a washout protocol. Mac, Windows, or Linux? Oh, man. Uh, <clears throat> that's such a good question. So uh, I can't. I wish this was... I don't want to... I'm obsessed with privacy. I don't want to show everybody my full office, but, like, I build custom computers for... I, I, I have this thing. Uh, this is also a trait of ADHD where I've never heard of a thing before. I hear of a thing, and I'm obsessed with becoming a master in it, and then just totally stop doing it. So... For a three-year period, I was obsessed with building PCs. For a while, I was actually sponsored at doing it. Like companies like Intel and G Skill would send me parts, and I'd build them, put them on Instagram. So that I was a heavy PC guy. But I'm talking to you on an iPad, which is my primary personal computing device. Like this is a, a fifth-generation iPad Pro with their M1 chip. Mm -hmm. Apple's SoC technology is obscene. Like what what Apple can do with their their M1 chips are just Oh, man, and they're integrated GPUs. They 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 call them a, a GPUs, but or APUs. Sorry, mm -hmm. um, they shouldn't function as well as they do, but they do. Which which shows how much integration, like an integrative approach and opt optimization approach, can matter. So, yeah. I like right there. That is a, a forty eight inch OLED, and behind there, I have a, a twelve nine hundred K and a thirty eighty Ti. That's my mm -hmm. main system. And then you can't see it, but here, I'll send you a picture of it after. I have um, a custom computer I built with a custom distribution plate. I water cool all of my computers because I have a CNC. I built like cool. a CNC router that's in my uh, mm -hmm. computer workshop so I can custom mill parts. That's running a 2080 Ti and a, a 10900K. That's like my daily driver with, uh, that's what like my, this is my productivity desk. That's my gaming desk. And then I'm talking to you on, on I would consider just a Mac. It's, it's iOS, but let's be realistic. It's got the same internals as it's got better internals than um, a MacBook Air. So I would say both. I've uh, I don't have the patience for Linux. I would say I've built Linux-based systems, but I just don't have the level of patience for what I need them for. So I would yeah, I guess I would say all three. But for most stuff, I would say Windows. I hate hate Windows 11. I've upgraded this one. Yeah. And I can't roll it back, and it's just pissing me off to no end. I forgot to do a system restore so I could roll back to Windows 10, and I'm regretting it every day. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that was seeing and just going down like the privacy wormhole, like you said, and the security stuff. I had two, I have I had an old MacBook Pro, a 2017 I bought, and I re just recently traded out because for the second time, those little butterfly switches on the keyboard, they're terrible. Yes. Like at first, they just started Awful. popping off. And then yeah. so I sent it off to Apple. They replaced it perfectly. It came back within six months. The key started sticking again. Oh, dude. Like, the keycaps pop off. Their so switches are so bad. They're awful. And so I looked up the M1 MacBook Air Pros, and I could I had a 15-inch uh, MacBook Pro with the i7 processor for the 2017. Yeah. They gave me $600 or $700 for, to return it. And so I got a brand yes. new M1 MacBook Air, the 13-inch, for yeah. 600 bucks basically. And so I love yes. the machine. It's the battery life performance. Oh, fantastic. It's like like I said, the the M1 processors uh, they should not perform anywhere near as well as they do. The APU should not perform anywhere near as they do, and yet 
you are getting in some applications comparable performance to a discrete GPU. It should not be possible. It should not be possible, and yet it is. Um, that is because Apple bought a chip manufacturer and a, um, yeah. a systems manufacturer a couple years ago, specifically to move away from Intel's architecture. Because the profit margins are much higher, it's much easier to control the supply chain, et cetera, a whole host of reasons. But those M1 chips are one of the most impressive things that's come out in personal computing, I would say, in probably the past decade. Which, by the way, that, that used to be, if you're like a technologist or, or technological historian, Apple used to do that as well. I'm not sure if you remember the Power Max. Oh, yeah. Apple, we, I grew up uh, with yeah. those. Yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. used to do that. They designed their own chip architecture, manufactured their own chip. Yeah. It was like private label chip manufacturing on an ARM architecture. But I used to love when they did that. And then they, when they moved to Intel, I was like, boo, boo, tomatoes, tomatoes, and then stopped kind of using them. And I'm like, well, if I have to use an Intel chip, I would rather build. You know, that was kind of my, right. if, I'm not, if you're going to force me to use an Intel chip and then a discrete NVIDIA GPU, I'm going to do it myself because I can yeah. do it for half the price. Now that Apple has moved back, that's because this was the first iPad that I've had in a very long time. I just stopped buying them. Yeah. Last year when they did the M1 chips and the iPad Pro for the first time, I thought this is a reason. Like you're getting uh, an OLED screen with higher pixel density than I think the MacBooks, mm -hmm. the exact same processor, a sufficient amount of RAM, plus you can use it as a media consumption device. So I just have like a keyboard hooked up for this. Yeah. And this is what I use as my primary computing device and I have not... Like if I'm gonna play games, I'm gonna play it on my 48-inch OLED with a 3080 Ti. I'm not. I don't play a lot of games, right? Because I'm obsessed with video games. It's like what I do my free time as well. <laughs> Obviously, I've got like these. No, no asshole with these lights doesn't play video games and RGB behind his TV. <laughs> Obviously, I think that goes without saying. Um, so yeah, I uh, have, saw no purpose. I just decided just to build discrete machines for discrete discrete functions, so that when I'm playing games, I'm not gonna be bothered by work. When I'm doing work, I'm not gonna be tempted to be distracted. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of like a platform, uh, I guess I'm platform agnostic, not for mobile. I wouldn't, you couldn't pay me to use Android for a lot for the privacy reasons. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for personal computing, I'm pretty agnostic. That Built the next nice. machines. I just don't, I don't have the tech. I just, I don't have the patience to sit there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can be a chore. Understandable. Uh, Kenton. This is fantastic. I feel like I could keep talking to you for another two plus hours and we would not run out of topics or anything. Yeah. Um, but we will we will table this until the next time we get together, which will be a lot sooner than it was between our first podcast yeah. and this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, um, sure. And plus the listeners don't know. I mean, I have an inkling of what you're working on in the background that you can't disclose. But when it finally comes to fruition, I think everybody's going to be very, very, very excited. Um, yeah. Anything you want to plug shamelessly? You want to tell people where to reach out to you or anything like that? Or if, if you're even no, in the, in I, the market I, for services rendered at this point? No, I'm good. I I really privilege my anonymity and privacy, so I don't. I'm the least self-promoting individual in history. I, I post on Facebook twice a year, usually for my wife's birthday, who is the most amazing person on earth and for our anniversary. And I like to keep my timeline clean for that purpose. I don't think I post on Instagram for a couple of years. I just don't care. I would, yeah. I like making more, I like making money more than I like attention. So I try to, I try to bias my life in that direction as opposed to the attentional direction. So yeah, I'm good. Same here. Awesome, man. Well, Kenton, thank you so much. And uh, man, have a great day, have a great year and uh, good luck with all the, the business ventures in the background. Awesome. Thanks for having me.